0: That's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW room void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18
1: plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk.
2: The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
0: Context of White Supremacy Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast. Hopefully, to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy, this is our eighth study session on Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy, uh, written by Stephen Kantrowitz, uh, suspected racist white supremacist. Uh, again, today's date, Friday, August 14th, 2015. So, I have been told uh, we should have about two. More study sessions and we will be all done uh, with Ben Tillman uh, moving forward to something else. Again, I hope this has been a constructive read for listeners. I know this, you know, can be kind of dense reading at times. Again, we're reading uh, 19th century South Carolina history and focus specifically uh, on former governor and U.S. Senator, uh, founder, co-founder of Clemson University and co-founder of Winthrop University in South Carolina. Uh, he has his statue still protected at the state capitol, even though the Confederate flag has been removed, as well as Tillman Hall, uh, both on the campus of Clemson and Winthrop. Uh, it remains uh, and cannot be changed without the same type of vote that they had uh, in the South Carolina Senate and House. Uh, I think it's two-thirds. They would need a two-thirds majority in both the Senate and the House. And then I think the governor also would have to sign off uh, before uh, any of that could be changed, meaning his statue being removed from the state capitol or uh, Tillman Hall being changed uh, on either campuses. Uh, For any of that to happen, it would have to be the same type of vote. And uh, as I said before, uh, most of the white people that I saw, even the ones who were saying that, you know, okay, we'll take the Confederate flag down, they were pretty upfront in saying that there was no way, no how, not today, not tomorrow are we taking down anything else. So, <laughs> I think uh I think Mr. Tillman is probably cool in the gang despite uh Clemson they released their little tacky statement saying that they uh I have to go back and look at it again because that was even that was even a, a trifling effort in my opinion, but uh acting as though they were displeased with his legacy and You know, this is uh, reprehensible what he stood for, but we're not changing the name of Tillman Hall, the signature building on our campus. Mm. We will go ahead and get started because we have uh, lots of material to cover. Uh, We will get lots of cowbell this week, uh, women's suffrage, uh, very interesting material, as well as education, very interesting. The danger of educating black people. We will go ahead and get started. We are on page. 210 context of white supremacy Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy in some areas black political work did not mean courting Tillman or voting for men like Dargan low country republicans accustomed to exercising their right to vote reportedly responded to democratic frauds in the delicate selection elections by breaking up polling places and attempting to force election managers to destroy poll lists and returns. This kind of black Republican self-assertion dated back to the early years of reconstruction and it could still bring results. Beaufort elected a straight Republican slate of delegates to the convention for with political rights themselves at stake, Black Republicans were unwilling to fuse with white Democrats and instead exerted their full electoral weight. It turned out to be their last hurrah. In 1896, with new laws in place, Democrats took the county. At the other end of the state's political spectrum, Edgefield politics had become a white Democrats game, and Tillman and five other white Democrats were dispatched to Columbia as convention delegates reporting results that surpassed even Tillman's impressive performance as an election manager in 1876 the Edgefield advertiser boasted that not a Republican vote was cast in the county nor did a Republican offer to vote the generation of Republican challenge had passed and with it the days of Democratic mass mobilization education And citizenship. When the delegates to the Constitutional Convention assembled in Columbia in late September 1895, all eyes focused on the Committee on the Suffrage chaired by U.S. Senator Benjamin Ryan Tillman. The first question on delegates' minds was how to guarantee an electorate that would be intelligent. Nearly every proposal for suffrage restriction included some form of literacy test, for nearly all agreed that ignorant men should not vote. As early as 1888, F.W. Dawson's Charleston News and Courier had suggested replacing the eight-box law with a formal constitutional educational qualification. In the late 1880s, Hampton had described an educational qualification for the suffrage ...as uniquely fair and objective. Had Hampton been speaking in the late 1870s, a charitable listener might have been inclined to hear him out... ...for he had done more than most white men to support education for both black and white children. South Carolina's first true public schools had emerged during Reconstruction... ...following the 1868 Constitution's mandate for non-discriminatory public education for children 6 to 16 years old. Schools were funded by a dedicated tax of $1 on each citizen. Unlike the poll taxes of the late 19th and 20th centuries, this was not intended as a means of restricting the suffrage. The 1868 Constitution specifically forbade using non-payment of this tax as cause for disfranchisement. School segregation was a fact of life in Hamptons, South Carolina, but in the late 1870s, his government had provided roughly equal support for black and white schools and amended the Constitution to levy an additional 2 mill, 2 thousandths of a cent on each dollar property tax for education. But after the initial flush of Hamptonite paternalism, the allocation of school funds became intensely racially discriminatory. The same 1878 amendment that increased school funding also apportioned the new funds according to school attendance, not school age population. Since poverty limited many black children's attendance, this sleight of hand channeled disproportionate funds to the white minority. By the mid 1890s, even the veneer of fairness had worn thin. Per pupil expenditures for white students were hardly generous, but they exceeded annual expenditures for each black student roughly $1 by a factor of four. Public education was separate, unequal, and inadequate. Blaming this inadequacy on its poorest victims White Democrats often alleged that black children received much more in school funding than their parents paid in taxes. The Charleston News and Courier offered such arguments in urging the repeal of the two-mill school tax. Tillman suggested that taxpayers should be able to choose the school to which their tax money went, adding caustically that any white men who wanted to subsidize black education would be free to do so. Some white alliance men even demanded a constitutional convention for the specific purpose of allocating school funds by race. Evans, in his opening address at the convention, suggested separating white and black school revenues. This, he thought, would bolster white men's support for the public school system since the great mass of people never complain of taxation for education when they know they derive the direct benefit. But the search for explanations for education's sorry state sometimes revealed deep cultural grievances among white men. As early as 1882, one self-proclaimed expert offered an elite urban audience one explanation. The common people, the poor white trash, had been perfectly contented so long as they maintained a questionable superiority over the Negro, and so long as nature afforded them a means of substance, without toil, without money and without price. White voices calling for better schools from the benighted countryside reciprocated this hostility. In 1889, an Edgefield editorial demanded a five month school term across the state, blaming not poor white trash, but aristocratic villains for impeding such improvements. If public schools had failed to reach the masses and educate them For the duties and responsibilities of citizenship, the responsibility lay with militia colonels, oily lawyers, and gentlemen with abnormally developed craniums from Charleston and Columbia. Tillman had long claimed that education was a top priority of the reform movement. He continued to champion Clemson. During his first summer as governor, he had laid the school's cornerstone and his eldest son, B.R., joined the college's first class, graduating in 1896. When the college faced attack at the Constitutional Convention, Tillman declared, I will stand by that college if nobody else does. For the rest of his life, he remained deeply involved in Clemson, and not only as a life member of the Board of Trustees. He concerned himself with the details of construction and hiring practices and he sometimes seemed to consider himself more superintendent than trustee, lecturing the college's president about such matters as the characteristics of hedge lemon seed and warning him of the worrisome disposition of a particular foreman to slouch over and do with makeshifts. Although he sometimes fretted about the state of things at Clemson, he considered the school a fitting monument to myself." This intense identification persisted throughout his life. From his sickbed during the 1910s, he begged President Walter M. Riggs to write me a long letter and tell me all about the college and its affairs. But Tillman envisioned Clemson as only the capstone of a system of education for white South Carolinians. He had little patience with those among his allies who saw public, primary, and secondary schools as unnecessary luxuries and he continuously bullied voters about school spending let us educate our children he declared to a crowd at a county fair we spend about 60 cents per capita and there are a great many of you who have spent more than that in whiskey and tobacco since you have been here and yet you are not willing to go down in your pockets for better schools he repeatedly called for a $3 poll tax that would simultaneously provide much-needed revenue for education and make the Negroes pay. The interconnected politics of a poll tax for school funding and the educational qualification to vote brought charges and countercharges. Opponents of the convention repeatedly warned that it would pass such a tax, enact a literacy test, And then sit back as the public schools became too costly to maintain and many white men unable to read and write lost their right to vote. The Charleston News and Courier in particular warned the country voters of the dangers of an educational qualification, but Tillmanite and Alliance supporters of the convention regarded such advocacy with suspicion. Those who claim to fear for the public schools are the folks who always opposed them, declared the cotton plant as the 1894 election approached. The cry? Disfranchisement of the poor white man is all a political dodge. But some reformers seemed of two minds. In a convention speech, reformer Henry Byrne offered a litany of complaints about the wrongs done to the laboring white man that tied school funding to a host of other grievances. Speaking on behalf of the hard-pressed white producer, Byrne contrasted demands for white political solidarity with insistence on economic self-reliance. His vote is relied upon to keep the Negro down, Byrne argued, and yet when he asks for work, there is none for him while he sees Negroes employed in his steed. When school topics are discussed, he is told that it is wrong to take A's money and use it to educate the children of B, and yet it is right to put a musket in the hand of B and, by order of the state, compel him to defend with his life the property of A. If the military responsibility for white supremacy required democratic redistribution, then why should poor men not expect something in return? to burn the crowning injustice would be the disfranchisement of such white producers by qualifications that allowed some of those employed Negroes to vote. Is it to be that property-owning Negroes, educated Negroes, can hobnob around politically and educationally with such classes of white men, he demanded, while 13,000 illiterate white men as good and better must stand aside without even a vote to defend their lives? Tillman might have sometimes sounded like Burns' ally, but his advocacy of education for poor white men betrayed a deep ambivalence about such men's fitness for citizenship. In the Constitutional Convention, Tillman offered a plan to rationalize the boundaries of the state's school districts so as to ensure that every white child could reach a classroom. After being informed that some of the existing district lines were irregular because school boosters had been unable to persuade outlying districts to join in levying new school taxes, Tillman meant no words. He relied on centralized authority and his own superior understanding of poor white men's true needs. We'll fix it so that they will have to agree, he explained. Let us levy the taxes here in the convention and not leave it to any ignoramus or set of ignoramuses who want to breed up ignoramuses. Here, Tillman spoke as the contemptuous leader of a wise elite doing for an ignorant populace what they did not have the sense to do for themselves. The slap at country voters Perhaps the same neighbors Tillman had once described as utterly and hopelessly stupid was echoed a few minutes later by his suggestion that the outlying country be made liable for its proportion of school bonds. As the convention concluded its work on the public school system, Tillman insisted that the school tax should be added to the Constitution and not left up to the legislature to set statesmen should rise up and grasp a duty and send these ignorant boys to school he said I wanted to levy a poll tax of three dollars I have been all around through the country and I am bamboozled by the boys somehow because all of them voted for me or nearly all of them and I wanted to offer the three dollar poll tax and I believe I can justify it before the people today others present agreed urging higher levies and larger poll taxes to build up decent schools that would foster wide-awake citizenship among the farmers and country people. In the end, Tillman believed he knew what was best for poor white men. The other danger, Byrne had noted, black education was even more troubling. Although democratic rule ensured inferior education for blacks, it did not eliminate black education entirely. Tillman and many others knew that any formal restriction of black access to public education would bring both local resistance and a Northern outcry and that significant improvements in education for whites could not come entirely at the expense of education for blacks, but black education posed a clear and present danger to white supremacy. As black South Carolinians, continued to send their children to school and the overall rate of illiteracy among blacks dropped from nearly 80% in 1880 to just over 50% in 1900. A rising note of concern appeared in democratic discourse. Tillman did not see the good of educating black children. He declared at an 1886 meeting that when you educate a Negro, you educate a candidate for the penitentiary or Spoil a good field hand. An editorialist worried that black men were being educated away from work, becoming urban swells. But the primary threat was electoral. As early as 1889, one of the state's conservative congressmen had suggested that the state's provision for public schools might give black South Carolinians an opportunity to take advantage of the schoolhouses, get educations, and outvote us. Evans, aware of this trend, told the General Assembly in his 1894 inaugural address that as far as black education was concerned, the state's white democratic leadership had performed our duty to the Negro, possibly too liberally. Education was not entirely a local matter. Northern philanthropists supported a good deal of black education in the South, local activists civic and religious leaders, and a few die-hard missionaries carried on the work of the post-emancipation freedom schools. At times, the federal government also became involved. In 1889 and 1890, Southern Democrats anxiously followed the legislative maneuvering over the Blair Federal Education Bill, which would have vastly increased the money available for public education, but would also have mandated equal expenditures for white and black children. Although some welcomed the potential infusion of federal dollars, many white Democrats attacked the bill as unwarranted federal interference in local affairs. The Charleston News and Courier mocked white supporters of the bill as naive and threatened retaliation if it passed. Arguing that whites provided 90% of school revenues and therefore subsidized black public schools, The paper declared that if it be determined by Congress to fasten a federal system of education upon the states of the South, the repeal of the two mill tax is inevitable. In other words, they would give up on public education altogether before they would accept any measure of federal oversight. The paper rejoiced at the Blair Bill's defeat in the U.S. Senate in 1890. Other federal efforts brought the same warning. If the lodge bill had passed, the Charleston paper threatened in 1891, it would have been necessary to cut off support for black education in the state. Although separate and unequal schools did not come under sustained and successful legal attack for another half century, the federal government did occasionally try to set limits on discriminatory school funding. Federal land grant legislation provided substantial aid to state agricultural colleges, aid that was supposed to be divided equitably between white and black institutions. In South Carolina's case, between Clemson and Claflin, Claflin College, which provided industrial education to black men, had been established as part of the state university system in 1872 and received nominal appropriations during the 1880s. By the mid-1890s, it had become essentially an agricultural annex of Claflin University, a private Methodist institution with which it shared faculty and facilities. Still, many reformers believed that Claflin's very existence undermined white supremacy. During the 1890 campaign, Tillman's running mate Eugene Gary pronounced Claflin a threat to white wage earners. Its graduates, he said, earned three to four dollars a day, wages that ought to go to skilled white boys. In the 1889 General Assembly, Evans took a page from Tillman's book of symbolic politics and moved to strike out the appropriation for Clayfield. The effort failed by a wide margin, but earned the praise of the Edgefield Chronicle, which explained that educating black people made them pestiferious. When the new federal Morrill Act, made money available for agricultural colleges in the early 1890s, Tillman proved willing to sacrifice white education to prevent blacks from achieving even purely symbolic form of equality. Interior Secretary J.W. Noble explained to Tillman that under the terms of the act, he was to make an equal division of federal resources between Clemson and Claflin And that this meant a division proportional to the state's school age population of whites and blacks. Claflin was therefore entitled to about two-thirds of South Carolina's Moral Act money. Tillman rejected this attempt to dictate the terms of the division, denying that the federal government, perhaps especially under a Republican president, had the right to determine that equal is not equitable and just in the case of South Carolina. As an interior department official pointed out to Tillman, South Carolina's unusual racial demographics did not constitute grounds for special treatment. If equal meant half, most states would spend as much money educating black minorities as they did educating white majorities. Tillman refused to accept this argument. Since Cleveland survived primarily on federal aid and philanthropic donations, Tillman's refusal was potentially crippling to public higher education for blacks in the state. Claflin President L.M. Dunton, a white minister, sought to persuade Tillman or the federal authorities to relent. Dunton appealed to Tillman, the agrarian reformer, stressing that blacks must continue to be the practical farmers of the state and of the South, and that education made blacks more law-abiding. Tillman played the issue for all it was worth before white audiences. Before I would accept that money and give two-thirds of it to the Negroes, I will let it stay in the treasury, he defiantly pronounced during the dark days of the sub-treasury crisis in 1892. Tillman's assault on Clayflin attracted attention from outside the state as well. In an open letter to Tillman during the Constitutional Convention, Booker T. Washington implored him Not to do anything to injure the cause of black education. Like Dunton, Washington argued that ignorance bred poverty and crime. He also suggested that even if Tillman cut off all state money to black education, money would flow in from other regions and other countries and keep the light of the schoolhouses burning on every hill and in every valley in South Carolina. White South Carolinians, Washington offered, might prefer that black South Carolinians feel grateful to their own neighbors for funding their educations rather than to outside parties wholly. Tillman was not persuaded by such appeals on behalf of black education. In a letter to Dunton, he professed to be sorry that your school will be crippled, but he brushed all arguments aside. Noble refused to turn over the money on Tillman's terms until South Carolina's federal representatives, chiefly George Tillman, engineered passage of a bill specifically requiring him to do so. To the end of his life, Tillman expressed a deep fear of black education. It is foolish, to my mind, to disfranchise the Negro on account of illiteracy. He wrote an upcountry newspaper in 1913 and turn right around and compel him to become literate. This lament became a constant refrain of Tillman's lectures, articles, and Senate speeches after 1895. He complained that the 14th and 15th Amendments had handcuffed white Southerners, the Southern people as he called them, to the dead carcass of slavery. The only solution, Tillman argued, was to go to the heart of the problem, the federal Constitution. Repeal the 15th Amendment and all would be well. Each state should have the right to say who shall vote in its borders. This was the natural remedy to the race problem, and Tillman hoped white men would have the nerve and the courage to acknowledge it. Northerners were free to continue experimenting with black suffrage, but white southerners would prefer to discard their patchwork of suffrage limitations for a more comfortable garment of constitutional white supremacy. We have made this mistake of enfranchising a race slaves last week, barbarians three generations ago, Tillman explained. If it was a mistake, why not say so? And why not retrace our steps? Tillman's prognosis for the South, if the 15th Amendment was not repealed, was grim. So far, from South Carolina being out of the woods, the most dreadful crisis which we will have to confront is still ahead rather than behind. In 1911 Tillman was still dreading that future. I expect to continue the agitation in favor of white supremacy and of making this in law what it is now in fact a white man's country as far as the south goes. We know how we have kept it a white man's country and the northern people know how we keep it so. But this determination might not be enough as more and more black children learn to read and blacks even accumulated property. Every sensible man in the South who thinks at all must realize, Tillman warned, that the present anomalous conditions continued must result disastrously for Southern people. It is only by agitation and discussion that we can hope to create a public sentiment that will bring the necessary changes in our Constitution. The writing was on the wall, or more precisely, on the chalkboard. Black children outnumbered white children in the state's public schools. If literacy alone stood between those boys and suffrage, then white supremacy would soon collapse, first at the registration office, then at the polls, and quickly transform into the dreaded social equality. The disease of equality must be denied its pedagogical vectors. Black education must be strictly limited, and northern philanthropists must be made to understand the catastrophe they were inviting. These fanatics funded black schools and colleges throughout the South, including Benedict and Allen Universities, just a few miles from South Carolina State House. Their purpose, was to create literate black adults. Sooner or later, the result would be a substantial, educated, property-owning black voting block. Renegade, that is, Republican or populist white men, perhaps working as the agents of national corporations, would then mobilize that block to participate in the elections and control them. Tillman lambasted those who had encouraged black education and black voting from Hampton on down as the biggest fools alive. Those who were aware of black educational progress, but still considered the race problem settled were guilty of besotted ignorance. Those who sought to make black education compulsory were simply criminal. Unless the 15th amendment was repealed, Tillman argued the nation's sectional divide would persist the Civil War had settled the question of slavery and nationhood, but the federal government's insistence on enforcing and even extending the Reconstruction amendments left the sword of racial equality hanging over the South. As long as Republicans proposed measures such as the Lodge Bill, the Blair Bill, and the equal distribution of federal school funds, white Southerners would have no conception of the word nation except that it is connected with the word nigger. Although Tillman did not succeed in convincing his fellow legislators to overturn the 15th amendment, he accomplished something almost as significant. Tillman's argument against the 15th amendment reformulated the early 19th century southern doctrines of nullification and interposition and solidified the foundation for the 20th century language of states' rights. vilifying federal power as wholly devoted to the cause of black uplift at any cost, Tillman helped shape the language that it would echo throughout the 20th century nation. His analysis nourished a nascent political culture in which, to paraphrase his own lament, white men used the words states' rights as synonym for white supremacy. The rhetoric of intelligence and ignorance offered some black leaders an opportunity to claim the common ground of citizenship that Henry Byrne had feared. In the mid-1880s, D. Augustus Straker, the last black South Carolinian to run for statewide office until the mid-20th century, had imagined a South in which equal education drew black and white citizens ever closer together in their common fight against the powers of capital. In 1889, African Methodist Episcopal Bishop Benjamin William Arnett took a less ambitious tack telling a black college audience that the time is on its way when the general rule will obtain in this country that the man of lawful age who cannot read his ballot cannot vote for his fellow man. Unlike Tillman though, people like Arnett Wanted to see all black men both educated and enfranchised. For him and others, the principle of suffrage limitation offered an opportunity for black Americans to demonstrate their capacities on a level playing field. This vision of equal opportunity proved elusive. By 1895, their idealism, curdled by persistent fraud and violence, the six black delegates to the Constitutional Convention understood that their only hope to shape the new document lay in making use of the rhetorical openings their opponents provided. Black delegates questioned the implicit equation of ignorance with blackness. William Whipper, who had been demanding suffrage rights for almost half a century, conceded that the Negro was unprepared for the ballot when he got it but asserted that the white man was equally unfit. One class had been ignorant. The others had been taught to believe the Negro, the basis of property. Smalls told the white delegates that he was even willing to accept a scheme that provides that no man who cannot read nor write can vote. If you dare pass it, James Whig accepting the principle on an educational or property qualification suggested that discriminatory laws would lead to white supremacy with white degradation, explaining that the Negro does not stand for the rule of ignorance over intelligence, nor of poverty over wealth. He insisted on the supremacy of law as well as of intelligence and property. His proposals were tabled without discussion. When Mary Miller compiled these men's speeches for publication after the convention, she wrote approvingly that their suffrage plans would have eliminated the ignorant vote, but secured a fair and honest election. Miller's husband, black Beaufort Convention delegate, state representative, and former U.S. Congressman Thomas E. Miller offered a bolder and potentially inflammatory alternative. Like Straker, Miller imagined a coalition of those who feared turning over their government to the wealthy, to the managers of corporate rights, to the gold bugs, to the whiskey trust. Miller offered a history lesson in which the common people, European men and women, having been reduced to white slaves, rose up in justified revolution against their aristocratic oppressors and sought a new life in the new world. Although Miller acknowledged that Africans had been brought to America in chains, he cast the nation's history as a tale of united striving. Hand in hand, with a unified effort, the white man and the black man reclaimed the country and made it the asylum of the oppressed from every clime. In a particularly bold and heterodox conclusion, He presented the Civil War as the struggle of the common people against the slave-holding class. But Miller's optimistic reimagining of American history was balanced by his attack on the state of white civilization. In a discussion of public education, Miller applauded any step that would prevent our white people from remaining isolated and away off in the backwoods. They will be educated by coming into contact with each other. The white people need this education more than any other people in the world. On account of their isolated life, they have remained a lawless people, having little regard for law and order and at all times ready to take the law into their own hands. Property, Virtue, and Independence Under Tillman's plan, men who could not demonstrate literacy could vote if they owned at least $300 in taxable property. Tillman claimed to represent the interests of ordinary white farmers and his imagined antebellum arcadia was a Jeffersonian realm of independent proprietorship in which the land-owning farmers were the salt of the earth and called no man master. But although the property qualification, like the literary test, was intended to catch white men while letting black men fall, it too was self-evidently imperfect as a racial filter. By 1900, the U.S. Census found that 40% of white and 77% of black farm operators in South Carolina were tenants of some kind, figures that did not even include the many of both races counted as laborers. These persistent white landlessness, along with the growth of the cotton mill economy during the 1890s, threatened the white farm household, the essential building block of Tillman's white republic. Wealthy Democrats might declare that their devotion to poor white men, but Tillmanites and conservatives alike tended to see property men as more fit for citizenship. Evans declared, matter-of-factly, that the tenant or renter having no home to love, no castle to defend, no sacred ties to bind him, no vine or fig tree to watch to maturity cannot nurture patriotism. Tillman thought that a property qualification made intuitive sense. The very fact that a man has a few dollars is a sufficient reason of itself to show that he is probably a better citizen, he explained. Besides, he argued to deny the suffrage to those who paid taxes, even if they were illiterate, would be repugnant to American liberty. But the very notion of a property qualification put Tillman in a difficult political position, and he beat a hasty retreat to the high ground of the greater good. He readily granted the perfect equality of white men, from the poor laboring tenant to the highest man in the state but he rejected the notion that this equality could stand in the way of ensuring good government. In an ideal world, no white man's right to vote would be jeopardized, just as no black man's right would be secured. But this was not, he reminded his constituents, an ideal world. The greater good demanded a secure white majority. Some Democratic members raised the obvious objection that the poorer a man is, the more helpless he is, the more need there is for him to be secure in the protection of his life and property. All that he has in this world is his vote. Tillman found such idealism pointless and even irritating. Some delegates, he complained, believed that the poor white men must be protected at any and every cost. He himself had tried to do more poor white men than anyone he insisted and although his artful combination of tactics would disenfranchise a certain number of white men the proposals of some conservative delegates made Tillman seem relatively sensitive to poor white men's political demands the conservative minority weighed in over and over with proposals granting or extending the franchise on the basis of wealth South Carolina had long been governed by a combination of white population and white wealth. And once again, in 1895, some sought to write wealth back into the law. Proposals for property qualifications abounded, some much higher than Tillman's three hundred dollars, and many included an educational test, not as an alternative route to the suffrage, but as an additional barrier to it. If the principle of white land ownership was controversial, that of black dependence was not. Black men were never supposed to head fully independent households, and Tillman explicitly denied them the state aid to which he thought poor white men were entitled. This distinction became clear at a moment of economic crisis. A great storm struck South Carolina in August 1893, lying waste to a vast coastal region and leaving most of its population destitute until the following year's growing season. Although Tillman sought to get aid for the white planters whose property had been damaged or ruined by the storm, he insisted that black laborers work for their supplies, for they cannot be treated as we would treat white people. The correspondence pouring into his office from white allies in Georgetown and Beaufort caught the tune and echoed it in endless, simple variation. I know great harm will result from giving rations free. Every precaution has been taken to prevent the abuse of charity. Ordained to occupy different positions in the social and economic order. Black and white people could expect dramatically different treatment at the hands of the white supremacist state. To protect white men's self-sufficiency, Tillman advocated a strong and unconditional homestead exemption law protecting a certain amount of real and personal property from seizure by creditors. J. William Thurmond of Edgefield, Tillman's lawyer and soon-to-be Strom Thurmond's father, wrote that the state's existing homestead exemption law should be preserved in the new constitution. The manliness, independence, and bravery that he cherished would not survive if the law allowed moneylenders to seize a family's home. Lawmakers, he said, had a duty to protect orphans, widows, and helpless families. If they chose instead to enrich the capitalist Society as they knew it could not long survive. Tillman agreed that manliness demanded the protection of white men's dependence against the corrosive forces of capital, but he went much further than Thurman in asserting an explicitly paternal role for state government. He believed that capitalists did not destroy homesteads all by themselves, but seduced men into debt through emasculating vices such as liquor and credit. It was the responsibility of the state to step in and ensure that white men did not gamble away, drink up, or mortgage their freeholds. In part, this meant making the homestead exemption inalienable. If an unworthy husband could mortgage his homestead, he might leave a good woman destitute. To those who claimed that poor men could not get credit without Signing away their homestead rights, Tillman echoed his argument against the crop lien. The thrifty man does not need credit. Mortgages must not be allowed to infringe on the homestead exemption for the essential basis of the white republic had to survive. A house and a few acres of land, he insisted, must be saved for the family. Homestead exemptions protected households against the corruption of the financial system in the same way that the dispensary protected them against the moral corruption of the barroom and liquor trust. In both cases, a wise leader would create structures that defended the mothers and children of the state against the worthless and indifferent and drunken husbands. Many shiftless white men, it seemed, would do better to trust in the protective enactments of a paternalistic state government than to rely on their own ability to manage credit and debt understanding understanding given Tillman's skepticism about white men's abilities to act in their own long-term interests it was no surprise that many voters doubted his promise to preserve the suffrage of landless white illiterates through an understanding clause the suffrage plan his committee finally presented to the convention called for purging the voting rolls and starting a new registration limited to adult men who paid taxes on at least $300 worth of property or could read and write any section of the Constitution to the satisfaction of a registration official. Until 1898, men would be able to register, albeit on a separate list, if they could satisfactorily understand a section chosen by the registrar. After that, the normal provisions would apply, and in fact, anyone who did not register almost as soon as he became eligible would have few opportunities to do so. It was a highly restrictive system with a specific end in mind. The education and property qualifications would take in most white men, but relatively few black men, Tillman argued, and the understanding clause would act as a safety net for poor white illiterates a democratic election official could continue to register his friends neighbors and relations all good white democrats who therefore understood the constitution but the great majority of blacks who did not pay taxes on $300 worth of property and who would not have been able to read write or understand, to the satisfaction of that same official, would slip from the registration books and become forever irrelevant to state politics. Tillman had tried to do his best to safeguard the property and further the education of white men, but the understanding clause was essential. Without it, Tillman admitted he could not hope to keep his promise to protect white men's suffrage or to lead the state's voters out of the bog and mire that we have been wallowing in for the last 20 years. Of course, the understanding clause constituted its own form of mire, a reality Tillman was willing to acknowledge in all but the most explicit language. When Richard Carroll pressed him on the question of impartial administration, noting that making laws and enforcing them after they are made is another thing. Tillman did not reply, but at the convention, Tillman acknowledged that the understanding clause both relied on a measure of fraud and placed the rights of the citizen in the hands of a single official. Fraud might be poisonous to democracy, but Tillman archly asserted that some poisons in small doses are very salutary and valuable medicines. However nauseous, this particular medicine might seem Tillman only swallowed enough of it to preserve the rights of the poor white man. Only by this homeopathic theory of justice did his subsequent case for the clause's legality make sense. A registration official charged with determining whether or not a prospective voter understood the section read to him would be responsible to his conscience and his God, and to nobody else. Therefore, any unfairness was a matter for the official and his maker, and no business of the Constitution makers. It might easily be a question of just simply showing partiality, perhaps, or discriminating. This final knowing pun drew appreciative laughter from many in the convention hall. More often, apologists for this imperfect measure portrayed it as Unwelcome, but necessary. Upcountry editor A.B. Williams of the Greenville News explained in sober terms the hard logic of the understanding clause, fraudulent administration and all. Some good men believe and say they would rather take their chances and fight the Negroes man to man at the polls every two or four years, if necessary, than to put fraud into the Constitution, he wrote. But fraud was hardly the greater of the two evils. Such men, Williams continued, forget that it is as much violation of law and just as demoralizing to kill and bulldoze people as it is to swindle them. Sometimes the discussion of the Understanding Clause made even Tillman nervous. One delegate saw in the Understanding Clause the opportunity and possibility of fraud, but no necessity for fraud and thus nothing unconstitutional. My understanding is that this will disenfranchise every Negro, he joked. Another delegate remarked that we know that it is the purpose of the proposers of this bill that it shall not be impartially administered. Tillman, mindful of outside reaction, found this a great deal to say and, on reflection, more than any man ought to say. But the speaker did not take the hint. This is no time for mincing words. He declared, in the defiant style Tillman had championed, the danger that we are in is too great for circumlocution. And if the law is to be enforced honestly, I could not vote for it. Black delegates expressed outrage at these blatant endorsements of fraud. Thomas Miller presented a petition of protest. Smalls pointed out that the proposed qualification was ludicrous. How can you expect any ordinary man to understand and explain any section of the Constitution to correspond to the interpretation put upon it by the manager of election when by a very recent decision of Supreme Court, two of them put one construction upon a section and the other justice put an entirely different construction upon it. Like the other black delegates, these men spoke earnestly on the rights of suffrage and sought to retain the 1868 Constitution's assumption of male voting rights, but their democratic arguments were swept aside by the democratic majority. Some white conservatives argued that the codification of fraud, mere lying devices to enable qualified voters of one color to be disenfranchised and a race to which we have pledged protection to be basely swindled. Represented Tillman's general disregard for suffrage rights. They decried the injustice the disenfranchisers intended to commit against qualified black voters. Those who are to administer the law are to administer it unfairly and fraudulently complained the Columbia State. That is the admitted meaning of the scheme. Gonzalez argued that Tillman had made the Negro into a boogeyman more powerful than any group of real human beings. It is really strange, agreed a Lexington politician, that an intelligent community, from fear of Negro domination, can run to the other extreme and rob themselves of political privileges. Altogether, he concluded... Our reform friends seem to consider Cuffy an indispensable scarecrow. These white men decried a political order in which it is necessary to hold the Negro down to ensure white supremacy, and it is necessary to hold the whites down to ensure white supremacy. Butler had made similar arguments during the 1894 Senate campaign. The incumbent fighting for his political life declared that the Tillmanites' dictatorial and corrupt ways had fractured white men's social and political relations. White supremacy, he shouted, protesting the convention, the dispensary raids, and the indignities inherent in running against Tillman does not mean ring rule and disenfranchisement of white tax-paying voters or the destruction under the forms of law of their rights and liberties and property but butler took another step he added these wrongs do not acquire sanctity because the perpetrators have white skin although he reaffirmed his devotion to white supremacy he repeated the charge if we are to be robbed and plundered as we are now i do not know the color of the skin of the robber makes it more bearable. Another Edgefield voice warned voters not to take the rhetoric of white supremacy so seriously that they did themselves harm. Do not for the sake of a mythical white unity, a unity that cannot from the nature of the case exist, go with a majority that is more completely under the thumb of bosses than the negroes ever were in the days of radicalism such critics were only echoing distinctions that tillman had already established it had of course always been the case that the reconstruction of white supremacy required that certain whites be held down as many observers had by now discerned blackness had long been nearly as much a political identity as a racial category and white men could lose their claim to be worthy of a vote in any number of ways. Support for qualified suffrage was, according to a letter in the Edgefield Advertiser, a way to put the Negro vote out of the way of low, unscrupulous demagogues or white niggers. Many Telmanites argued that Haskellites and even Fusionists should be dealt with as if they were black. That is, they should be summarily disenfranchised. Tillman himself argued that white men could prove themselves unfit for the privilege of voting, telling a Charlestonian that many of your people are unworthy to have a free vote and fair count, not because they voted against me, but because they did not vote at all, and those who did were manipulated or bought. Fools, tools, and fusionists all merited the same derision and disqualification. A decade later, after Beaufort had come under white democratic rule, Tillman continued to define race in terms of political behavior. Referring to the now defeated Fusion office holders, he noted that they had some people of white skin, but I consider that a man with a white skin who consorts with Negroes, hugs and kisses them to get votes is not a genuine white man. Not every reformer agreed that this fraudulent understanding clause should be written into the Constitution. J. L. M. Irby, now thoroughly alienated from his reform compatriots, believed that the disenfranchisement proposal discriminated against poor white men. Pointing out that the understanding clause had not yet undergone federal judicial scrutiny, he declared that it was wrong to build bomb proofs and fortifications for the educated and property owning class while leaving the poor white man to risk and endure the tests of a hostile court. Further, the understanding clause would make poor white men dependent on the grace and favor of supervisors who may be hostile to them for personal reasons or in the course of local politics may desire their disfranchisement. The Columbia State agreed, arguing that a Tillmanite suffrage plan would lead to the rule of one man through agents of his own choosing responsible not to the people, but to him, putting the suffrages of all South Carolinians at the mercy of the executive. Irby thought the special list for those registered under the understanding clause particularly insulting. He invoked the thousands of boys now 19 or younger whose parents are too poor to give them an education or endow them with $300 worth of property. The 1st of January 1898 deadline for registration under the Understanding Clause would, he said, forever deny them the right to vote. In two years time, you can't educate every white youth in South Carolina both to read and write, he explained. For the impoverished conditions of thousands of poor white farmers and laborers will not permit them to spare the time for their sons to go to school. As a result, this class of young men will have no more voice in the government of this state than the mule that they plow or dumb cattle that tread our highways. Worse, they would have less voice than educated or property-owning Negroes living in our towns or cities who would make laws for those poor white men to live under. Women and Suffrage One alternative to the humbug of understanding was to overwhelm the black majority with an untapped pool of potentially qualified white voters, the state's white women. Although women's suffrage activism in South Carolina had begun with reconstruction Republicans, white democratic women in the state and throughout the region mobilized to take advantage of the disenfranchisement movements of the 1890s. Attempts to minimize the number of black voters would inevitably strip many white men of the suffrage they argued, but extending the franchise to literate or property women would provide disproportionate benefits to the forces of white supremacy while swelling the ranks of black voters hardly at all. South Carolina's proponents of suffrage for white women took their lead from Mississippi's 1890 disfranchising convention which, despite the absence of a statewide woman suffrage movement, had seriously considered qualified female suffrage as a means of swelling the white electorate. After a federal judge ruled against South Carolina's registration law, one suffragist asked the state Democratic Party to let white women help in this time of dire distress. Truly, the moment has come when its women are needed at the polls for its redemption, declared another. Like many white suffrage activists around the nation, these women rooted their arguments in elitist or white supremacist principles. Viola Neblett, for example, decried a system That made educated white women the wives and mothers of the honest great men that built this republic the electoral inferiors of Irish ditch diggers, illiterate coachmen, and low-minded criminals. Virginia D. Young, a woman's Christian Temperance Union WCTU organizer and the state's sole female newspaper editor, was foremost among the white Democratic women arguing for women suffrage. Voting was not a matter of physical strength she held, but a matter of judgment and fairness. If it was true that government derived its just powers from the consent of the governed, she asked, should not South Carolina's women be asked for their consent? At least, she cheekily suggested they should be allowed to take part in a hand primary. Otherwise, she argued, women like herself were the victims of taxation without representation. Who more than we women understand better the bitter mortification of Negro rule, the rule of untaxed Negroes over white women? To the objection that women suffrage would enfranchise black women, Young answered that she was perfectly willing to accept educational or property qualifications. Young understood that if she won her fight, It would not be because of principle, as her longtime rival Sally Chapin cynically explained, our politicians will give woman the ballot as the Republicans did the Negro, not from any sense of justice, but for the same reason they have all stuck hayseed in their hair and called themselves farmers." Just as Chapin had once imagined that Tillman might be her ally on temperance as a matter of reform, Young had some reason to think that Tillman might be sympathetic to her agitation. He had, after all, been the champion of public higher education for the state's white women. For years, some South Carolinians had argued that white women needed an institution of higher education both to train them for their domestic duties and to give them every possible opportunity to fit themselves for any business in which they may find it necessary to embark in the bread winning race. As Governor Tillman supported this movement and pushed through legislation establishing a state funded normal and industrial college for white women, Winthrop College. Although Tillman believed white women could properly engage in many kinds of business, voting was not one of them. His speech at the laying of Winthrop's Cornerstone in 1894 offered a vision of white women's proper social roles that fell short of suffragists' hopes. He began by praising the white women of South Carolina as models of pluck and resiliency in terms familiar to those who had been listening over the past decade. Our wives and daughters, he said, have met the changed conditions wrought by the emancipation of the slaves with much greater success and fortitude than the men, and they do a much larger proportion of work than we do. Unfortunately, the state had not always recognized the need to cultivate this strength. This was due, he claimed, to the effects of slavery upon our habits and customs. Men had learned to see women as ornaments, and husbands had been reluctant to allow their wives to gain a practical education. Of course, as the celebrator of the sun-browned goddess well knew, neither his mother nor his wife, let alone less wealthy white women, had ever been a merely ornamental presence on the farm. The Charleston News and Courier, discussing Woman in the Old South, also understood the divergence between myth and reality, concluding that like the silken, languid dames of popular tradition, had no existence. But Tillman, the perpetual critic of the slaveocracy, could not resist another opportunity to lambaste the state's earlier leadership for its aristocratic pretensions. Normal and industrial education for white women would help rescue white society from the evils of the past as well as those of the present. Tillman's letters to his wife, Sally, reflect the tension between normative notions of male protection and the realities of their life together. When their oldest son, B.R., was 17, Tillman wrote home from Washington, D.C., to reassure his wife that she would not be left helpless should anything happen to him. B.R. can take care of you if... You should be left alone, he consoled her. The imperative of male protection was not surprising for a man of his upbringing, class, and era. But having established that patriarchal authority would persist whatever happened to the individual patriarch, Tillman immediately issued directives that told a very different story. Don't let B.R. run wild hunting, he worried, and make him read some every day or night. Ideology and practicalities did not necessarily have to coincide. They could even contradict one another without causing obvious distress. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we will be picking up uh, kind of the top of 232 uh, for folks who are following along top of 232 context of white supremacy. Uh, that number again uh for folks to dial in is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate that number again seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, for folks who do not want to use your phone to dial in, the free flash phone should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, and if you need the address, that address is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot c forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, That address again, tiny, t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you put that address in, look on the left side of the page. uh, There's a link. uh, It says free flash phone. Click that link. It will open a small window on your screen. The top line. It is a drop-down menu. Uh, You want to pick the number that I just gave out, which, again, is 760-569-7676. And the code is 56494. Excuse me. The code is the next line and the code, again, 564943. Numbers on the first line drop down menu, select the number I just gave out 760 569 7676. The next line it'll ask for the code that code again five six four nine four three. And then the line, uh, final line it'll ask for a name. You can put in nickname, you can press random keys if you're comfortable using your real name, that's fine too. Once you get all that entered. Click the green button at the bottom. Uh, it will connect you to the live program. You should be able to hear us. Uh, it's the same procedure. If you want to participate, you'll see the uh, dial pad on your screen. Press star six. Uh, you should hear the audio prompt to press the number one. When you do so, I will see your hand on the switchboard and we'll be able to get you on the line. Uh, with that, again, we are on the home stretch. Uh, For folks who have hung in, uh, we should only have about two more sessions uh, before we are all done, Uh, two more. So we should be finishing uh, this book up uh, on the 28th, Friday, August 28th, should be our last session, and then we'll move on to the next text. So folks uh, have things they would like to share this week and kind of start getting your uh, final thoughts together. Uh, for major themes, uh, major points uh, that folks will take away from the text. And uh, if anything stood out in terms of the white author practicing racism, make sure you kind of get that in uh, as we are wrapping up the text as well. Uh, hitting the phone lines, and all of the folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, should be with us. Uh, let's see, uh, we have Thomas in New York. Uh, Mr. Demry-4, see you all with us right now. As I see other hands, I will nab them as well. Uh, If you all have anything you would like to share, feel free.
3: Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. Demry-4 here. Uh, Starting at the beginning of the uh, reading, uh, it looks like that the black Republicans that were used to voting, their response to the Democratic fraud that was going on and the uh, delegate selection uh, process, their response was breaking up the polling place and attempting to force the election managers to destroy the poll list and return. So I think that that's a demonstration of black self respect, uh, because the hopelessness that they felt, they had to do something. And so it manifested itself in that way. And the book states that that was. To be their last hurrah. I think that that particular wording may uh, be an act of racism, but I don't know. And in 1896, they put new laws in place, you know, so the book said the Democrats took the county. So they uh, took control of uh, which. You know, every time it seems as though there's any progress on behalf of blacks, then there's an insurgence of uh, white terrorism. And it looks like education and citizenship became intertwined so that ignorant white men and women may be disenfranchised. So the system had to come up with a way that they could still deny the rights of black people and then not disenfranchise white men and white women. But, uh, the funding of schools was another way that they practice racism because under Hampton's rule or his government was accounting for equal support for black people and educating, uh, white schools and black schools, uh, roughly the same. But after 1878, eight years later, see, they came up with this amendment that would increase the school funding. Also, appropriating new funds according to school attendance. Now, this was a clever way and refined way to practice racism because uh, poverty limited many black children from attending schools. So by changing it, the funding, according to school attendance, would further disenfranchise black people and hindered the education of black children. And to make matters worse, the, black, the whites blamed the inadequacy on the poorest victims and said that black children received much more in school funding than their parents paid for in tax. And they went on, you know, with the poll tax, making, uh, the in said, to make the Negro pay. So they increased the revenue uh, that they were applying to black people to pay for uh, white education. And I thought it was interesting that he would still be concerned with micromanaging Clemson from his deathbed, you know, probably trying to make sure that... uh, No blacks were ever getting into Clemson. And they looked at, on page 216, they said black education posed a clear and present danger to white supremacy. Those words, clear and present danger, is associated with war and presently used in Uh, illustrations of the war on terrorism. So uh, yeah, one more thing. I thought that uh, it was interesting that uh, a 50% illiteracy rate in the 1900s in South Carolina, this is what uh, Tillman's idea of uh, educating Negroes would be educating a candidate for the penitentiary or sparring a good field hand. So, with this mentality, it had, at one time, was 80% illiteracy rate, right? but still 50%. Over half the black people were illiterate in the state of South Carolina in 1900. I'll mute my line and give somebody else a chance because there was a mention of the word fair. But I, I have a few more comments that I can make later. Thanks for taking the call, Gus. Yes, sir.
0: Uh, Mr. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have uh, commentary you wanted to get in as well?
1: Sir? Yes, sir, we can hear you. How are you this evening, Gus? Good evening to you, um, Mr. Demery, and all the rest of the callers. Um I had a quick observation. You know, um, this was a, a genius plan in my estimation and one that plays out today. Um you know, I, I can't remember the direct quote, but it was like a proportion of white men had to be held down as well as the niggas, you know, the certain percentage of white people in a predicament to to, to, to maintain white supremacy. Uh, it's not a direct quote, but that was pretty much paraphrasing what we said. Um, am I or, or Am I bugging here? Nope, they said that. Okay, so I think this was a genius plan. I mean, always point to those poor whites when black, when they do black poor. People, you know, look at all these white people that's poor. And look, you know, and, and people on welfare. It always, you know, they have to keep that I maintained because same white people will take out their frustration on black people. They know that. You know what I'm saying? they can't themselves. You know, like, just like we always say, you know, you're a brand new car, you don't want to go to work and park it in the parking lot so everyone can see it. You know what I'm saying? You, um, you you want to, you, you don't want them to know what you got. You know, and here you have these black laborers in uh, the same thing as, I mean, we I mean, get to those white people at the top? So who are they going to take out their frustration on? But those black people. I think that's the same thing that plays out. Uh, I, I just see something out right now, and um, you know, also the these um, mandates and things as far as um, you know voting. Um, to even keep white people from voting as well. You know, it, it was just, it's just, you know, a part of the system has to be, it has to be a, a huge percentage of white people that's downtrodden, that, that's in the same financial and, and, and probably um, economic and environmental situation as blacks to maintain that white hierarchy and white supremacy. And um, I'll I my line. Thank you
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think the exact way that they uh, the exact way that they put it out, this is on 227 uh, where they're talking about voting, uh, but it reads some of these are direct quotes too. Uh, Gonzalez argued that Tillman had made the Negro into a boogeyman more powerful than any group of real human beings. It is really strange, agreed a Lexington politician that an intelligent community, from fear of negro domination again uh, can run to the other extreme and rob themselves of political privileges altogether he concluded our reformed friends seem to consider Cuffee an indispensable scarecrow these white men decried a political order in which it is necessary to hold the negro down to ensure white supremacy and it is necessary to hold the whites down to ensure white supremacy and they go on for the next uh, paragraph or so just talking about uh, other people who were expressing the same concern that uh, in the name of maintaining white supremacy and holding off the threat of Negro domination, uh, they were committing all sorts of uh, abuses and crimes against other white people. And uh, that is, that is rife uh, throughout the system of white supremacy, white people mistreating other white people, abusing other white people, Uh, keeping other white people from gaining more power. There are constant battles uh, around this in the system of white supremacy. They're not even allowing white women to vote uh, at this time, even though they are still equal partners. They're just not allowing them to vote. Um, The, uh, the only only quibble that I would, would toss in would be uh, even the downtrodden poor white people. They are not at the same level as black people that, just as my uh, opinion, there are books uh, that are out on this right now where poor white people uh, just being white. They have access to other white people. They have a lot of other opportunities. Uh, there was a great book that came out uh, last, I think it was last spring. Uh, it came out. It was written uh, by three different people. Uh, it's The Long Shadow. Uh, is the name of the book, The Long Shadow. It has multiple authors, uh, but it's uh, set specifically in Baltimore. This is well in advance of the Freddie Gray situation, but they were basically looking at poor uh, white people and black people who had the same poor economic status. Like maybe they had done some prison time, had been arrested, not finished school, uh, you know, no money growing up, terrible situation, and the white people still came out way better, <laughs> just on the basis of being white. That's one thing I, I do try to get in uh, that even poor white people are in a better state than uh, poor black people. Um, some of the tidbits that uh, that stood out that uh, I thought were also important uh, on page uh, two twenty, and I think this uh, sentiment has come up repeatedly throughout the book. It's something that we've talked about regularly down through the years over the program and uh certainly I think you're gonna hear some of this with the uh presidential election, uh the candidates and everything as this continues to move on and accelerate over the next year or so. Uh but the portion where it's kind of the middle paragraph on two twenty, Tillman's argument against the fifteenth amendment reformulated the earlier nineteenth century Southern doctrines of nullification and interposition and solidified the foundation for the 20th century language of state's rights, vilifying federal power as wholly devoted to the cause of black uplift at any cost. Tillman helped shape the language that would echo throughout the 20th century nation. Um, And just the last sentence, his analysis nourished a nascent political culture in which to paraphrase his own lament, white men use the words states rights as a synonym for white supremacy I thought that was important as well you kind of see because I I definitely believe that you still see this sentiment you still hear uh, this notion uh, particularly now with uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch formerly uh, Eric Holder uh, President Barack Obama that the federal got i believe it was the uh u.s representative in arkansas i might be off with the state but i think it was in arkansas where he said last year that the federal government had declared a war on white people uh and it was quite it wasn't just him it was quite a few white people had basically been saying the same thing that president obama is out to get them eric holder is out to get them loretta lynch is out to get them and they're just messing everything up for white people we got to take our country back the oath keepers and the tea partiers and all these different folks. Uh, Even Clavin Bundy uh, and the folks that were out at uh, at the uh, (coughs) Bundy Ranch in Nevada last uh, spring with their automatic weapons and sniper rifles um, that, you know, there's some sort of federal tyranny uh, out here that these niggers are at the root of. uh, And it's messing over us white people that that idea is long running. I think even some of that is articulated, (coughs) some of that is even articulated uh, in Dylan Roof's uh, manifesto uh but that is just the fact that ben tillman gets credited with being someone who kind of helped uh begin this notion and even putting it out there so that you can move away you don't have to be as direct you can just start saying states rights as opposed to saying well i'm here to support racism white supremacy i don't want those niggas in school with my children and blah 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 you can just say states rights I'm here for states' rights and we don't want government uh, intervention in our affairs. And you can just ride that out. And I think you've heard that idea repeated uh, throughout this text as well. Even this week with him not wanting the federal government interfering with uh, the allocation of funding uh, for black children uh, on (coughs) the uh, different passages on 227. Even though you had various white people. Uh, who were pointing out, I think that was uh, Thomas in New York, even though you had various white people who were accurately pointing out white people are not ignorant about racism, they can see, like... Oh, you all just got, you know, this is your little scheme that you do. You just come out and, as they said, use niggers as your scarecrow to get people all wound up. This is going to be your boogeyman. And so, oh, my goodness, the Negroes are running amok. Negro domination. They're about to come take over and rape our wife and get white people all riled up. You can pass whatever laws you want to. You had some white people who were seeing that this is nonsense, like the stuff that you all, uh, or even before I get to their critique, most of these white people came out and said, well, wait a minute. First and foremost, I'm for white supremacy. Let's not get that. Don't get that confused. Don't uh, mistake me for being in support of Negroes. Now, now that we got that out of the way, I don't particularly like what these white people are doing in how they are advancing, promoting, practicing white supremacy, that what you're doing is not going to be helpful for other white people that you're just using (coughs) white supremacy and this this call of, of Negro domination as kind of the red herring Uh, just to galvanize white people and get them to support what it is that you're doing. Uh, I think I find it interesting that you have white people uh, both then and now uh, who recognize this, even though they are in support of white supremacy, but they just don't like what that white person is doing. And this sort of thing happens all the time. White people, they mistreat other white people all the time. And a lot of times this is acceptable as long as black people are going to be the ones that take the brunt of any abuse or mistreatment. The white people do this sort of thing all the time. And you generally get the same thing with the white people that are even coming out in opposition uh, they might not say it publicly, <laughs> as some of these folks did, but generally speaking, they are also down with racist white supremacy. They just don't like what's happening, or they might be one of the ones that's mistreated, or they don't like the way that the uh, the booty of this uh, system of injustice is being divided. Uh, also, thought <clears throat> on two nineteen. Again, I'm just kind of keeping in mind because we 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 are getting close to the finish line. So, kind of big picture thoughts big picture takeaways from the book what did you learn what is this book saying one of the things that I've had uh in mind the whole time like when you uh talk to white people as I said at the beginning they're going to be keeping uh all of Ben Tillman's statues monuments buildings that are named after him all of that stuff is likely going to be there for a while um they're not taking it down it's not coming down anytime soon Uh, and I said you know hey let's let me hear the people who say that you know they think Ben Tillman is important and should be revered and respected and we should have Tillman Hall if it's not for white supremacy what is it for so now we've you know we've read most of the book we only got a little bit left we've seen most of what he's done in his life I mean we're talking about somebody who wanted to repeal the Constitution or at least aspects of it particularly aspects pertaining to everyone having a universal right to the ballot box absolutely not we don't want that at all let's just go ahead and throw this stuff out <laughs> like that is that is amazing to me uh and that's another one to just point out this is the guy that you all want to worship what is there here to be proud of this guy didn't even want white women uh to vote what is there to be proud of what is there to celebrate i thought some of his lines uh where he's talking about repealing uh black people's access to vote uh let's see where he says uh <clears throat> and all of this again related to fear of Uh, Black education, it is foolish to my mind to disenfranchise the Negro on account of illiteracy. He wrote an upcountry newspaper in 1913 and turned right around and compel him to become literate. Uh, He moves on. He says Tillman argued, uh, the only solution Tillman argued was to go to the heart of the problem, the federal constitution, repeal the 15th amendment and all would be well. Each state should have the right to say who shall vote in its borders. This was the natural remedy to the race problem, and Tillman hoped white men would have the nerve and the courage to acknowledge it. Northerners were free to continue experimenting with black suffrage, but white southerners would prefer to discard their patchwork of suffrage limitations for a more comfortable garment of constitutional white supremacy. We have made this mistake of enfranchising a race slaves last week, barbarians three generations ago. Tillman explained if it was a, a mistake, why not say so and why not retrace our steps direct quote? I mean, just fantastic. Those are the type of things I think they should just litter. Uh, Tillman Hall, all of his statues, anything else that has it in it, they should just litter his quotes. This is what he said. This is what he thought. Just put that up so that everybody is uh, in the know. No confusion about who is being worshiped. But I just, I find that amazing. I think that really gets right to the core. And I think if anything, I think a lot of the reason that white people have such uh, high esteem for white people like this is that for the most part in the refinement stage, many white people don't feel that they can come out and be this blunt and direct, uh, in their commitment, their dedication to the religion of white supremacy and I think for a lot of them they appreciate that brand of shameless proud white terrorism they really appreciate that the same way that that white people Uh, who endorsed and voted for and, you know, made it possible for Ben Tillman to be governor uh, and then state senator uh, from 1894 until 1918. I think that's like six terms uh, as a U.S. senator, the same white people who loved and adored him and celebrated him for his participation in the Hamsburg Massacre and ridiculing black people and making it difficult for black people to go to school, making it difficult for black people to vote uh, and just endorsing the rape and terrorism Uh, against the black people the white people who loved and wanted him to be in office to make sure all of that was happening is the same reason that those statues are there i just i haven't seen anything else and i think it's this sort of atmosphere uh where they're talking in fact even some of the things that are happening in south carolina there was an article in the washington post today it was written by the brother of one of the shooting victims in south carolina i posted it. On my Facebook page, my sister was killed in the Charleston church shooting. Uh, Removing the Confederate uh, Confederate flag isn't enough. This is the brother of one of the victims. And uh, he talked about, uh, in fact, I can read exactly what he said. He said, uh, it must also mean addressing the disparity in education funding or the fact that in states such as North Carolina and South Carolina, historically black colleges and universities get funded disproportionately to white institutions. It has to be about confronting the unconscious bias. That means that white Sarah Johnson with a stellar resume gets a job while the black Shamika Johnson with the same accolades can't even get an interview. That is the legacy of Ben Tillman. And it's not unconscious. This is willful and deliberate effort that has been laid for years. That goes back well over a century of white people like Ben Tillman, making sure that black students did not get the same access to resources and educational funding uh, and laying that groundwork not just K through 12, but all the way through Clemson, Winthrop, all of their state universities to make sure that black people did not have the same access to education uh, and funding. And we did all those programs earlier this year in South Carolina specifically. We were talking about South Carolina State University, HBCU uh, down in South Carolina where they're in all of these financial difficulties and they're just trying to say, oh, you had shiftless, no good Negro leadership. It was a waste of time. You shouldn't have this school anyway. Whoa, whoa, whoa white people have been deliberately underfunding and not giving this school all of the funds that they were entitled to receive and that this has been going on for a while that contributed to their financial woes it's a long pattern have you seen this stuff play out and again i can only say that ben tillman a uh, big part in this legacy and that's why he has these statues white people are not ashamed about this they do not rebuke any of this they adore and have the same stalwart commitment to the values of Ben Tillman. That's why he's got his pictures, his hall, his statues, and the stuff isn't moving. Uh he had a few other things in there. I'll I'll pause for a moment. Um <clears throat> if any of the other folks uh listening in, if y'all have a uh, question, commentary, feel free. Uh the number is 760-569-7676, and the code is 564943 pound. Uh I certainly uh thought the educational aspect uh was huge. We didn't get as much I'm almost kind of stuck cuz I felt like we ended before we got uh more of the resolution to the the women uh coming in to vote to offset the massive number of black people. Uh, that are in South Carolina, black people have the majority. So they're trying to figure out ways to offset that, uh, keeping them from being able to vote these understanding clauses and poll taxes and property qualifications, uh, education qualifications to restrict suppress black voters. Uh, and also another strategy to bring in white women. I thought that was uh, significant as well, but there's more to come on that in the second audio segment. Uh, if Folks had other comments that they wanted to share. Uh, feel free certainly if folks had any thoughts on uh, at least the initial reports that we got about uh, using white women as a weapon to offset black voting would be great to hear thoughts on that also any other thoughts from uh, other folks listening in feel free
3: yes can i be heard yes sir Okay, on page 222, it's saying that, uh, I guess this is Miller talking, on account of their isolated life, they have remained a lawless people, having little regard for law and order, and at all times ready to take the laws into their own hands. He's describing white people, but he's describing uh, this isolation being in the backwoods. Is what caused this. But we all know that it's not, and that's not true because they have the same behavior in the urban areas also. And then on page 223, uh, when the Great Storm hit in 1893, laying waste to the region, then I guess Tillman, you know, in 1893, yeah, I think he was governor he sought help for the white farmers and then said the blacks could uh, fend for themselves or something of that nature and that he could not, that blacks could not be treated as if they were white people like they would treat white people and on uh, page 229 they, like you said earlier, they came to a conclusion that by including women's suffrage or literate and uh, property women, that they would help white supremacy and still not swell the ranks of black uh, voters. But in essence, Bill Tillman was not in support of women's suffrage, and he wasn't having uh, women's suffrage.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So I'll mute my line on that. Thanks for taking the call absolutely
0: i thought that portion of 223 was especially important as well i've been doing uh immersion in uh studying researching and and revisiting 10 year anniversary of hurricane katrina and uh everything on 223 that should be painfully familiar uh to everybody who uh cuz they're doing a lot of retrospectives on what happened in new orleans uh in 2005 and the whole gulf area they're doing a lot of that right now it should uh it should sound real familiar. though It just it says, although Tillman sought to get aid for the white planters whose property had been damaged or ruined by the storm, he insisted that black laborers work for their supplies, for they cannot be treated as we would treat white people. And that's what I mean about it being direct. You couldn't say something like that, even though I think a lot of people felt that was very obvious uh, in 2005 uh, after Hurricane Katrina. But you couldn't say it as blatantly. Uh, as Mr. Tillman put it down and then to have white people come on and endorse Amen, man right on. Great job. We don't want to help those niggas out. Let them drown or whatever is going to happen to them. Uh, and they go on and said uh, the correspondence pouring into his office from white allies in Georgetown and Beaufort caught that tune and echoed it in endless and simple variation. I know great harm will result from giving free rations, which seems to be the exact same attitude white people displayed 10 years ago. Stunning. Uh, other folks have things that they wanted to uh, share. Uh, five two three four. You should be uh, with us also. Five two three
4: four. I agree with that. I listeners in the corners. Um, I didn't get to hear the, um, the the reading because I like to travel and home from work, but I did want to say in um, reference to just my overall view of the book, I literally consider ben the Jesus Christ of white supremacy. That is why um, I think his statues are everywhere in his name, buildings back to him. I think that he's basically giving white people the blueprint on how to behave to, in order to perpetuate it and build on the refinement of the system. Um, and to me, just the book kind of gives you a lot of detail on white sociopathy and psycho- psychopathy as well. And I just think that um, the richness of the layers of how twisted their minds can be, this book is like the blueprint for that. And I think that's why he's so popular. I think that's why his statues are everywhere. And I think it says a lot about the mindset of the average uh, white person. It's not just the politicians and people with money, but just the average dirt road white person, they all think the same way. And I mean, even to put just the back to right now, looking at uh, Donald Trump's popularity in the polls, it says a lot about the average white person's mentality. And to me, that's another oath to Ben Spillman as well. And um, you. I'll just keep uh, my line there, and I'll be prepared um, once we start the second section. Thank you. Right on. Right on.
0: We have about... Uh... Mm, About nine minutes before we get to the second uh, audio section, uh, unless folks have. uh
1: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, um, I just want to add on a few things. Uh, You were right on point with your observations, Gus, um, as was um, Mr. Demery and um, the gentleman who just spoke. Um, They still use that educational system to purposely disenfranchise people, um, and, and, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, he's definitely probably one of the grand architects of how the educational system works today nationwide, how you can have one group of people, um, you know, um, purposely not getting a proper education and another group of people getting a great education in the same cities. <laughs> You know, uh, or in the same area, you know, it's just crazy. Um, The last thing I wanted to say is, um, see, like a master plan. Looking back, I was just had to go back and look at what the 15th Amendment and read it, and um, you know, genius plan, uh, master plan for to first come up with the 13th Amendment system to to amendment, 13th Amendment to free the slaves but keep slavery in prison. Um, second, the 14th Amendment, uh, which gave all black people citizens, which gave the states and the federal government legal jurisdiction over them to put them in prison. And then the 15th Amendment, which um, definitely was needed to maintain this illusion of a democracy, which was to allow blacks to vote as well, and knowing that at the same time they could still keep them from voting using, you know, other other means. So... Just um, seemed like uh, from the federal level, not from Tillman's level, just, you know, just a very smart thinking of how to keep pretty much not slavery, but a, a, a pretty similar system where they, they still maintain a huge amount of black people that are, you know, civilly dead in prison and um, get paid off of it. And, um, you know, they they have the jurisdiction over them to put them in court and put them in jail in prison. And then, um, you know, we all to vote, and we feel like, hey, we're really making a difference by voting, you know, which is, you know, really full of crap. And we're gonna see it play out this election with the, um, with the, all these testing things I hear coming from some of the southern states and fees for the people, black people to vote now that they um went back on um the, the voting rights act. So um, that's all I wanted to say.
0: Yeah, about uh, seven minutes. Uh, folks have other things that they want to make sure uh, they get in before the second segment uh, should be. Uh, they're finishing with the role of white women as voters and that whole process, what Ben Tillman thought about that and all that. There's more to come on that, so we'll probably be talking about that in the second audio segment. Um, any, anything? Ha- yes, sir. Go ahead. We
3: have a. We had a mention, another mention of uh, the Reverend Richard uh, Carroll, you know, trying to get some clarity, I guess, from uh, Bill Tillman about that understanding clause. And it looks, as far as the book goes, look like Bill Tillman just ignored him. He didn't even respond to it his request this bill Tillman is just he's true to his belief is one thing I give him credit for absolutely no pretense
5: (laughs) to make it clear what it is like
0: uh, I feel like if we had had been Tillman uh, at FEMA or if he had been president during Hurricane Katrina it would have just been real clear. (laughs) uh, praise the Lord we need to pray Uh, our prayers have been answered Uh, We hope those niggas drown and uh, moving forward, (laughs) like, just make it clear what it is. So we have no ambiguity about things. Uh, The uh, retired firefighter in Florida. uh, Do you have a uh, questions, commentary you want to get in as well?
5: Yeah, just an observation uh, on how I'm I'm just in awe of this uh, racist, white supremacist, uh, terrorist. And how uh, deceitful, how uh, ambitious and hardworking, actually, for uh, the uh, maintenance of the system of race and white supremacy, he was. To where I think that that the methods, tactics, and strategies that he uh, was uh, creating uh, was actually. passed on through generations to present day. As, as for what I was hearing from some of the other callers. Uh, and this was probably why his statues still exist up around, uh, the, uh, the, I guess the Southern, uh, area of this part of the world, uh, from that, from that, for that reasoning, uh, as I think I heard you say is that, uh, uh, Indirectly, uh, he was too obvious, but too obvious about what he, what his, uh, ambitions were, but through him, other white people who don't want to be as obvious can kind of like idolize his, uh, legacy, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, the book is, 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 uh, really is a good, uh, Learning to to have the knowledge of what this, and we just talking about one person. <laughs> I'm I'm sure it was it was many more than him that was involved uh, with him, and even at higher levels. Uh, but a uh, uh, very interesting uh, read. Thank you. Absolutely.
0: It's fascinating on a lot of levels. Uh, Just real quick um, on, I guess this is 213, uh, where they're talking about funding for for public schools. And uh, you see some of this now where black, anything, anything that happens. What is it? Uh, Paul Mooney, uh, who wrote for Richard Pryor. He also wrote on the uh, Chappelle show. Uh, where he said uh, it's one eight hundred blame a nigger. Anything happens, uh, they just blame black people. Even even when they know that you know it's not possible that a black person did this, we just like doing this. We just like making up, lying, and making up things and blaming it on black people. So we have uh, supposed justification for terrorizing and abusing them. Uh, on two thirteen, uh, it says blaming this in, uh, blaming this inadequacy on its poorest victims. White Democrats often alleged that black children received much more in school funding than their parents paid in taxes. The Charleston news and courier offered such arguments in urging the repeal of the two mill school tax. Tillman suggested that taxpayers should be able to choose the school to which their tax money went adding caustically that any white man who wanted to subsidize black education would be free to do so. Now see that, that sort of thing in my opinion, where you could just get up and clown, Uh, While you're practicing racism. And he was doing this. This is uh, make sure I get the year on this. This is he was governor, I believe, when this is uh, when this is going down. They're having this dispute about, you know, what the taxes are going to be. And it goes on. Some white alliance even demanded a constitutional convention for a specific purpose of allocating school funds by race. Uh, I just I think that is extremely important and all of that should be factored in when they talk about black people now and having difficulties in school and why is the education gap what it is and, and just suggesting that black people are dumb or stupid or the bell curve or whatever incompetent white people have labored for years I mean centuries to make sure that black people could not get access to education not just ben tillman hordes of white people and i mean you talk about burning midnight oil white people have been willing to kill other white people you had white people who died uh on the campus of the university of mississippi because of one black student james meredith they did not want one black student to go to their school so you have white people being willing to kill other white people To stop this, Uh, all of that should be mentioned first and foremost. Anytime there's any mention of black people, whether or not we are properly educated or if we have any deficiencies in intelligence or what we should know, all of that is because of white people. And all of that could be easily corrected if we could do away with the system of white supremacy. Uh, with that uh you pretty much there at time's time, it's time for the second audio segment. Uh, if you have other uh things you wanted to share about uh the book Ben Tillman, uh just jot it down. make a note we should have ample time once the second audio segment concludes uh we're at two thirty two as I said we didn't uh, we kind of stopped in the middle of them uh resolving what they were going to do about white women uh they're going to bring them in to vote. Uh, To offset Negro voters or not. Uh, So we'll hear more of that. Uh, We are closing in on the finish line. So definitely make sure you get a hand up and share. If you uh, have concluding thoughts. uh, Analysis of the overall book. Impressions. Lessons that you want to take away. Things that stuck out to you as being important. We will go ahead and get started. This is Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy by Stephen Kantrowitz. We're on page 232. Context of White Supremacy audio segment number two but being subject to the same forces did not endow men and women with identical responsibilities when it came to politics Tillman saw women playing a figurative role he hoped that broad white support for Winthrop would heal the political divisions among the state's white men and he chose a metaphor that offered women a passive and subordinate role in the power struggle among the state's white men. He recalled that the ancient Sabines were brought to peace with the Romans by the women who had been seized and borne off captives to become the wives of the latter. So may the women of South Carolina become our peacemakers. After being educated at Winthrop, the state's best young women might be able to help their aristocratic-minded husbands see the wisdom of reform. Tillman's conservative social message struck exactly the chord he had sought. The Edgefield advertiser heartily approved of this speech, particularly Tillman's strictures against the unsexing of women. It hoped that the widely positive response to the speech would prove a harbinger of harmony among the men of South Carolina even the unfriendly Charleston News and Courier praised Tillman unreservedly for his eloquent and patriotic discourse Tillman declared that women were intrinsically unsuited for politics the laws of evolution he argued have differentiated the functions of man and woman and disaster awaits the people which attempts to repeal natural laws in 1913 northern senators attacked Tillman when he inserted into the congressional record a white southern minister's 1871 critique of northern feminism Albert Bledsoe's mission of women which presented white northern women as godless and unnatural Tillman claimed he had not read the offending passages before endorsing the article, but in typical fashion, he used his apology as an opportunity to attack women's suffrage and defend Bledsoe's warning. For Tillman, opposition to suffrage for white women was a knightly sword of protection, not a brutal pike of censure and condemnation. Suffragists might claim that women would purify anything they touched but he found this view both noble and misguided white womanhood was indeed glorious but it was not so omnipotent that it could withstand the debauchery of politics this monstrous and filthy arena as regrettable as political degradation and corruption might be they were preferable to degraded and corrupt white womanhood Tillman also explained his opposition to women's voting in marital terms. Since violence was a regular feature of the political meetings that constituted the heart of state campaigns, Tillman found the possibility of women's presence at the polls too horrible to contemplate. As he wrote to Virginia Young in 1890, he had never given much thought to woman suffrage but believed that few Southern women would want this right, as I suppose you consider it. Those tempting women to enter into the mire of politics failed to consider that they might be physically or morally injured. Many agreed, including black political leaders, who had experienced such violence from a somewhat different position. Although cautiously in favor of women's suffrage, D.A. Straker admitted being terribly afraid to see a woman at the polls. Young articulated a counter-argument that turned women's purity into an argument for the safe exercise of their suffrage rights. You say that politics are too corrupt for women to mix in, Young wrote in 1893. But my brothers, may not her coming cleanse away the corruption? you know women's power of putting things right. She and Tillman disagreed on this subject, but they understood the history of white womanhood in strikingly similar terms. When Young and a delegation of women, suffrage activists, addressed the Constitutional Convention, the male delegates made a great show of gallantry, escorting the speakers onto the floor and praising them extravagantly. But Virginia Young politely set them straight. Although it has been customary to set up women on a pedestal to be worshipped, she stated that custom belonged to the past. We are very practical these days in this state, she told the convention, and very few families can afford to have the woman part of it setting up on a pedestal all day doing nothing for self-support and the help of the family women often had to deal with men on a purely business basis, a situation in which men had the advantage because they were voting citizens voting was not a matter of physical strength, she argued women will go on being sweethearts, wives and mothers, and loving to dress and enjoying men's attention just the same when they vote as they do now I'm not the least afraid that you'll be just as polite to us, too, when we go to the polls as you are now. Indeed, during one of Tillman's confrontations with L. W. Yeomans in the 1892 campaign, the white women of Edgefield had been credited with preventing a violent political conflict. The women present were much calmer than the men, reported the local weekly, and quietly chatted and smiled and laughed while everyone and they, too, knew that the crowd was trembling on the verge of a fearful fight. Had they not been present at this time, concluded the reporter, the results might have been far worse. As suffragists had argued in other contexts, women's participation might make politics more civil. But women's suffrage struck men as a travesty, a bestowal of citizenship's privileges without requiring its concomitant marital and physical obligations. Suffrage, it seemed, was part of an essentially an incontrovertibly masculine set of civic and social duties. The masculinist opposition to woman suffrage linked the rights of voting and citizenship with the physical responsibilities of roadwork, military service, and electoral violence. The Anderson Journal suggested that if women were granted the privilege of voting, they should also be allowed to pay poll taxes and work the roads. Another opponent argued that voting for a certain law carries with it the duty of defending that law on the battlefield if necessary. Men might have to do so, but women would not. Their right to vote, therefore, would not entail the same responsibilities and thus was unfair and illegitimate. It naturally followed that those who had taken on martial duties could not justly be denied political rights. Irby was one of several delegates to oppose the understanding clause on the grounds that it would strip the franchise from former Confederate soldiers. He estimated that 15,000 illiterate and unpropertied white men had served South Carolina in the Confederate Army no poor white confederate volunteer had ever been asked if he could read or write before he was enlisted and to disenfranchise such men would be to dishonor the lost cause one black delegate seeking to take advantage of this argument by extending it to union veterans invoked a black military tradition that stretched back to the American revolution both black and white men, declared James Whig, have shed their blood in their country's service and have fought side by side upon a hundred battlefields from the first skirmish on Boston Commons when Crispus Attucks fell to the Battle of New Orleans when the flower of the English Army faded away before the leaden storms from the black battalions of General Jackson. One white delegate even proposed granting suffrage only to those who had served in either of the Civil War armies. In a comment intended to reassure his fellow white delegates that the consequences of such race neutral enfranchisement would not be too dreadful, he noted that the Negroes who fought on the federal side have, as a rule, more intelligence than their fellows undermining more than he may have realized the white supremacist interpretation of the sectional conflict despite this identification of suffrage with distinctly male obligations Young and her colleagues met with some initial success a few delegates seeking to increase the political power of the wealthy offered proposals tying woman suffrage to a property qualification several suggested that literate, property-holding women should be allowed to vote by proxy. One delegate even turned this decorous fraud into a straightforward statement of white male upper-class privilege. Male voters who paid taxes on at least $200 worth of property, and who represent a family as head thereof, should have the right to cast two votes But to endorse woman suffrage, even on pragmatic grounds, required compromising deeply held beliefs. Charleston editor T.D. Jervie could support qualified woman suffrage only as an alternative to fraud and violence. Gonzalez's Columbia State endorsed qualified female suffrage as a way of securing white dominance but began with the apologetic admission that manhood suffrage is theoretically the proper form of suffrage for a republic. The state argued that women had proved themselves capable of performing all the meaningful tasks of citizenship. Women in Wyoming sat on juries, and the question of women's military service had already been answered. Didn't she do it in the war just past? supporting the war effort by nursing, sewing, and shaming reluctant soldiers into service? A few white men endorsed women's suffrage on principled grounds. During the Constitutional Convention, the men of Lexington called for no sex in politics, government, or morals, and advocated a qualified female suffrage to that end. Reform-minded legislator and editor Robert R. Hemphill earned the praise of woman suffragists for introducing a woman suffrage bill in the state legislature. Hemphill was the foremost male advocate of white woman's suffrage and was a featured speaker at the 1895 National American Woman Suffrage Association Convention in Atlanta. But manhood, like whiteness, could be forfeited by unacceptable political expressions. To many, men who supported woman suffrage were not real men. Noting the woman suffrage proposals at the 1890 Mississippi Convention, the cotton plant commented that if the women of Mississippi have so much time and talent at their disposal, they must beg to be allowed to do man's work. It is to be hoped that the Constitution Convention of Men will have enough time and talent to tell these sisters where they belong. The Charleston News and Courier suggested that Hemfield sought to postpone votes on such measures until there were ladies present to hear his speech. This was taking chivalry too far. Edgefield reformer W. J. Talbert offered a less controversial form of solicitude. White women were on a pedestal so high and grand and great that we might take all of the thrones that have ever been filled by kings and pile them one on another and top them with the chair of the president of this republic and they would not reach to her feet. But women's power was not unlimited and far from purifying the ballot box they would be tainted by it. Did his fellow delegates, Talbert demanded, want to drag white womanhood down and degrade her by putting her at the ballot box? No. No. A thousand times no. D.S. Henderson, a prominent Aiken County lawyer and redshirt leader, declared that white supremacist arguments for woman suffrage were founded upon pure cowardice the idea of saying to the world that the negroes were so numerous that we had to drag the women in the state before us to protect us is pitiful before we do that let us do away with the excellent report of the committee go back get our shotguns and stand by the polls, and not in the name of heaven drag our women to the ballot box the cotton plant printed approvingly the words of a Seattle correspondent who called women suffrage an effeminate movement championed only by political Amazons on the one hand and bearded effeminates on the other. Young sought to diffuse these attacks by accepting and redeploying their conservative vision of gender roles. She suggested that since women were excellent judges of character, Woman suffrage would guarantee the manliness of elected officials. No Oscar Wilde's for us, she promised. The possibility of black women's political engagement also horrified many white men. For Tillman, black women were in every respect the inferiors of white women, whereas white women had taken up new responsibilities since the war, the bulk of labor in black households was still performed by men. In addition, Tillman was always ready to summon up horrific Reconstruction-era images of black women in politics. They will make the political night meetings of the colored people more hideous, he offered. Black women would be even harder to manage, even more pestiferous than black men reason enough to oppose woman suffrage. Woman suffrage met with a resounding defeat at the Constitutional Convention with an amendment granting the vote to women who fulfilled a property qualification, losing by a margin of almost 5 to 1. For Tillman, as for most of the 1895 Convention's delegates, an appreciation of white women's roles in the household Did not suggest that they should be treated as equals outside those bounds. Rather, the state had an obligation to provide white women with educational opportunities and a degree of legal protection against forces that might disorganize a well-functioning household, including not only black rapists, but also drunken or dissolute husbands. The symbol of white womanhood retained the tension implicit in the captive sun browned goddess. Tillman had praised in the 1880s. She was simultaneously a hard working, powerful body and an exalted, vulnerable figure. She had a proper and important role to play in many fields of Southern life, but not in the essentially martial domain of politics. Young and her colleagues did not give up. Speaking before the U.S. Senate Committee on Woman Suffrage just a few months after the 1895 Constitutional Convention, Young argued that South Carolina's approach to suffrage restriction would not solve the state's deep-seated social crisis. She pointed to electoral fraud as the source of black men's rage and she warned that the new system would do no better than the old at ensuring white men's and women's safety and security. Indeed, it would ensure the persistence of violent racial hostility. Rape and murder and house burning would continue, provoking the inevitable responses of lynching and mob rule. The only route to social peace was the implementation of fair and clean elections and this could be attained by giving literate propertied women the vote then they will outnumber the negro voters so that these people's ballots can be honestly counted eventually she hoped white southern men would come to see that the only white women's votes would make democracy safe for white supremacy Purity, and its limits suffrage restriction was the convention's main task but the discussion of education and property ownership inevitably introduced a host of other issues concerning the integrity of white men's households these discussions were not entirely under Tillman's control white women and African Americans might have failed to gain or retain suffrage rights, but they had some success pressing other kinds of claims. Tillman and his fellow white Democrats sometimes found themselves having to take positions on issues they would have preferred to leave undiscussed. When it came to matters such as divorce, interracial sex, and the very definitions of whiteness and blackness, even people now excluded from the Bali Politique could force the victors to confront their own contradictions nothing touched the patriarchal household nearer its heart than the question of divorce by the late 19th century American law was generally moving toward a view of marriage as a contractual relationship that could under certain well defined circumstances be broken South Carolina however had no divorce law The state's Reconstruction-era divorce law at first had been repealed in 1879 and most Democrats opposed writing a new one into the 1895 Constitution. Tillman saw South Carolina's uniquely permanent marriage bond as a heartening example of moral constancy in a world of legal sophistry and false expediency. Marriage was to the spiritual life of the idealized white family what the homestead was to its economic life and the state was justified in protecting it against men's moral weaknesses in states where divorce was legal, Tillman noted a man might marry a woman in her youth and beauty but forsake her when she grew old and unattractive in order to gratify his lustful desire for some young and buxom girl Even worse, a husband would be compelled to treat his wife with disrespect in order to convince her to agree to a divorce. And divorce laws so weakened household relationships that fathers, husbands, and brothers became too demoralized to exercise the unwritten law of vengeance against those who debauched their women. Fortunately, South Carolina's men were threatened with no such demoralization. The rule of law might have claimed an ever larger share of the responsibility for maintaining social order, but white men were still required to defend white women from physical harm. In this context, South Carolina's ongoing record of lynching and other vigilante violence testified to white patriarchy's local good health. The purity and stability of the family has in all ages been the surest bulwark of the state, Tillman wrote. It was surely the state's responsibility to return the favor. Tillman saw the decay of marriage and women's entry into men's sphere as twin warning signs that civilization was about to fall, and he asserted that the relation between votes for women and divorce if not one of cause and effect, was at least one of mutual acceleration. Not surprisingly, even woman suffragists avoided discussing divorce reform for fear of being dismissed as disreputable, free lovers. Tillman sought purity and stability, not only for white households, but also for whiteness itself. That meant policing racial boundaries where purity and stability seemed most vulnerable in the realms of law and sex. The framing of a new constitution made the legal definitions of race and legal consequences of interracial sex a matter of public debate. Whether delegates decided to accept or to modify historical customs and conventions... They would first have to articulate those customs and conventions in plain language. The ensuing debate gave dissidents and gadflies an opportunity to pull holes in the faulty logic of racial and gender purity. Defining race in legal terms was not a simple matter. Many Negro or mulatto South Carolinians were close kin to white South Carolinians and some well-respected elite white families were known or believed to have recent black ancestry. So, the convention unenthusiastically set about the task of deciding how much Negro blood it took to make a person black. George Tillman, who fancied himself an expert on the subject of racial classification, was the convention's strongest advocate of the one-eighth rule. He pointed to an antebellum custom by which men with less than one-eighth black ancestry could testify in court and noted that several prominent but unnamed white families were known to have black forebears. On the other side of the debate were men who believed that no one with any black ancestry could be considered white, including delegate George Johnstone who was opposed to any intermixture. Johnstone was less interested in past instances of racial mixing than in their present and future consequences. He claimed that there were hundreds of undeniably black young men in Charleston and Columbia with less than George Tillman's proposed portion of black blood. Are you going to turn them loose? He asked the convention conjuring up a scenario in which an 18-year-old white girl married one of these white men, then presented her helpless parents with a grandchild who was unmistakably black. Even if the offspring of such a marriage appeared to be white, this only deferred the calamity to another generation in which the stain of blackness might emerge. While white delegates fretted over the racial purity of white lineages, black delegates attempted to use the rhetoric of purity to protest white men's sexual exploitation of black women. Smalls offered a bitterly double-edged proposal that any white person marrying or cohabitating with a person of one-eighth or more Negro blood be disqualified from public office. He also suggested that any offspring of such a cohabitation be entitled to inherit property from both parents. These proposals did not, needless to say, directly reflect the black leadership's priorities. Smalls, after all, hardly meant to advance the notion that associating with a black woman degraded a white man or made him unsuited for governing. Rather, the former slave and union veteran sought to take advantage of white men's own rhetorical objections to interracial sex. He described a situation that wealthy and powerful white men claimed to abhor and suggested appropriate deterrence. Daring his white colleagues to vote his proposal down, Smalls stated his hope that the gentlemen would vote here to purify themselves. He felt sure he would have support of white delegates' wives for such good and pure women would want their husbands to be equally respectable. Smalls even taunted the white male delegates with the proposition that if woman suffrage was allowed, the women would pass some such law to purify the men. Smalls' assault on white supremacy's sexual double standard sent Tillman hurrying for cover. He supported Smalls' proposal arguing that if the convention was going to make racial intermarriage illegal, it was only common justice to make it illegal for white men to debauch black women. But Tillman's notions of justice had, as usual, as much to do with political expediency as they had to do with morality. As he put it to his colleagues, half apologetic at his agreement with a long time Republican nemesis, we dare not broadcast that after this question has come up, we are afraid to act on it. In fact, Tillman presented his opposition to a racial amalgamation as evidence that white Southerners were morally and perhaps racially superior to white Northerners. He claimed that although northern white women were marrying black men in ever-increasing numbers, southern white women would never commit race suicide in this way. He never conceded that any southern white woman would accept a black man as a lover or husband. When a Pennsylvanian wrote to ask him what the child of a black man and a white woman looked like, Tillman responded tersely that he did not know because I have never seen such a cross. Perhaps, he suggested, the writer would be able to find one in Philadelphia. Momentary agreement with Smalls did not alter Tillman's view of black women as immoral and degraded. When the opportunity arose, he gave vent to sexual slanders against black women as a group. As far as sexual relations go, he wrote to a Kansas correspondent, Black women are little better than animals. He believed that they usually did not resist white men's sexual advances. This, he thought, was a result of generations of slavery. Having been taught that whites were superior, black women believed that having a child by a white man was a mark of improved status. This explained the complacence of the Negro women, who, according to Tillman, were nearly always more than willing to gratify a white man's lust this view of black women caused Tillman to balk at raising the state's age of consent. Sally Chapin denounced the state's current age of consent, 10, as a foul blot on the state's reputation, and under her leadership, the state WCTU formally petitioned the convention to raise the age to 18. Over the course of discussion and debate, however, the age of consent gradually fell back to 16 then to 15 and finally to 14 white womanhood's rhetorical antipode black women's complacence was the magnet drawing it down Tillman was among those who feared that if the age of consent were raised too high innocent white men might be entrapped and legally ruined by adolescent black seductresses In the end, not surprisingly, the convention delegates voted almost entirely along racial lines. Only two white delegates joined the six black delegates in rejecting the Constitution, and even these two white men agreed to sign the document, an indignity from which the black delegates begged to be excused. The new Constitution cut deeply into the remaining Republican electorate. When voters re-registered in 1896, as required by the new Constitution, only 5,500 black voters remained, alongside 50,000 whites. The literacy, education, and understanding provisions, along with the requirement that voters pay a poll tax six months before voting, dramatically reduced participation in general elections. For the next half century, the Democratic Party ruled the state through a white primary. Reducing the numbers of poor voters of both races, the convention thus solidified the rule of the same elites who had first mobilized against reconstruction a quarter of a century before. Although these men were nearly as politically divided as they had ever been, their collective triumph was nonetheless real and both reformers and conservatives left the convention generally pleased with how things had turned out. Ben and George Tillman, despite substantial disagreements during the convention, agreed that together they had made a good constitution. At the convention's close, George Tillman formally bade farewell to public life in a speech that looked backward with a mixture of nostalgia and defiance. We are not a free people. He began, for if we were free, instead of having Negro suffrage, we would have Negro slavery. Instead of having the United States government, we would have the Confederate States government. In his telling, white men's recent history took the form of a fall and rise, beginning in the idealized past of the antebellum era, sinking into the trough of Reconstruction and now soaring again in the wake of the 1895 assemblage. The Tillman, who was not a Tillmanite, called the convention a rainbow of hope and an affirmation of his faith in the Anglo-Saxon race. Loyalty to party and race had overcome black suffrage. White supremacy now had the force of law. White unity had been as nearly re-established as could be hoped for in a world without slavery. Nothing can go amiss with us, he concluded in language that celebrated that political and legal reconstruction. Unless we forget that we are white men, Carolinians and Democrats. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we will pick up. We actually ended at the end of chapter 6. So we'll pick up next week. At the beginning of chapter 7. Which is the uses of a pitchfork. <laughs> Incredible. Two two uh, sessions and we're all done. Two sessions and we're all done. Uh, number to dial is 760 569 And the code is 564 three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Um, one of the things I've been trying to keep up with is the footnotes to make sure that I share anything juicy. That's one of the things that I recommend uh, for people if you you know really want to try to maximize your reading experience. Uh, the text is good, particularly if it does have the footnotes to go ahead and check them out. A lot of times you can find other books that you might want to Read. Uh, Sometimes it can be interesting to see where the author got their material from. Uh, This particularly, in my opinion, books that are older, uh, to see where they got the quotes from and to be able to go and get some of the older uh, either newspapers or diaries, journals, things of that nature, contemporary sources. That can be pretty fascinating at times. Uh, One of the footnotes uh, from Chapter 6 where he was talking about uh, educating black students, uh, it's footnote number 34 uh, for Chapter 6. Uh, where he says that state su- uh, ch- state support for public schools in South Carolina uh, at the turn of the century public schools in Edgefield offered 20 weeks of instruction for white students and 12 weeks of instruction for black students uh, and this is referenced uh, it's in the Charleston News and Courier uh, the December 23rd, 1900 newspaper where they talk about this uh, in more detail uh, and that's the sort of thing that As I I think I said that right as we were wrapping up the first audio segment, uh, any dialogue, any discussion about black people uh, not testing as well as white people not doing as well academically? Uh, Are black people just ignorant? Are black people just stupid? Why can't they get their act together? White people have labored intensely and shown willingness to kill other white people to make sure that black people do not have access to quality education. Ben Tillman being prominent in that number. Folks would like to participate. Uh, feel free. Uh, everyone who dialed in with the hand up uh, line should be open. We have about a half hour left. So uh, please don't wait to the last minute. If you think you have comments you would like to share.
3: Yes, can I be here? Yes, sir. Okay, in this particular reading, uh, what stood out to me was on page 236, uh, I guess they were considering women's suffrage, and I guess some of the white men were endorsing it, some was against it, they were going back and forth, and then the paragraph comes up, It said, but manhood, like whiteness, could be forfeited by unacceptable political expression. You know, there's a system of white supremacy where you can uh, classify and reclassify people, and you can just define what you consider whiteness is. You know, that seems like the ultimate, you know, power to. Then on page uh, 237, they start to talk about, uh, I guess, the fear that white men had of black women's political engagements. They were horrified of that. But then they started breaking down uh, their hierarchy of what they considered uh, the positions that black women should be in and Tillman's view of black women as immoral and degraded, you know, was overemphasized and his rhetoric about sun brown goddesses of white women, you know, while he was denying the suffrage to all of them was phenomenal. And, you know, it brought up the point that when women were fighting for their suffrage, they would even hide their views from their husbands and then sneak out to the rallies and this and that, and then not to give away their uh, uh, belief system as far as design uh, suffrage. And Tillman was among those that feared that if the agent consent was raised too high, that innocent white men might be entrapped and legally ruined by adolescent black adulterers. You know, setting up, you know, defense for white men to continue to terrorize black women. And Tillman, true to his uh, belief, is stand true to the end. And the last part, on 242, he ended up with a true supremacist uh, statement when he said that loyalty to the party and race had overcome black suffrage. White supremacy now had the force of the law. Within white unity had been as nearly reestablished as it could to be hoped for in a world without slavery. And I think that says it all. I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: other folks who uh, dialed in, you should be with us when him closing out that uh, passage that Mr. Demery for read on two forty two, uh where he says nothing can go amiss With us, unless we forget that we are white men, Carolinians, and Democrats. Uh, I thought, first and foremost, we got to remember, we are white. Uh, And I think white, that's why his statues are still up. They have not forgot what that means. Uh, The other folks who uh, are with us, if you all had commentary, uh, feel free to chime in. Please don't wait till the last minute. Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
4: All right. Um I have a couple of points as well. There's a section on page two thirty eight that says the only route to social peace was the implementation of fair and clean elections. And this could be attained by giving literate property women the vote. Then they will outnumber the Negroes so Negro voters so that these people's ballots can honestly can be honestly counted. Eventually she hopes white Southern men will come to see that only white women's vote could be made democracy safe for white supremacy that passage basically tells you right there that you know they are you know locking and step with the right man as far as their perceptions and understandings of the system of white supremacy um it also kind of speaks to de- just their dedication like they're completely dedicated to uh this system and would do anything to maintain it and it will, i've always uh just had a, a premise that White uh, right supremacy, being that women uh, are the teachers of children, that uh, they're the they're the created. I believe they're the ones who created the whole concept, ideology, and spread it to their male and female children. And this kind of speaks to me in a way in which almost like they created the system, gave it to the men, the men took it over and subjugated them as well. <laughs> and now they're trying to ask for more power in the system that they gave to the men in the first place. And then there's a uh, second section. Uh, that's on page 241 that says, uh, Sally Chapin denounced the state's current age of consent, uh, 10, as, fu- as a foul block on the state's reputation. And under her leadership, the state WCTU formally petitioned the convention to raise the age to 18. Over the course of discussion and debate, however, the age of consent gradually fell back to 16, then to 15, and finally to 14. White womanhood's rhetorical antipode. Black women's complacence was the magnet drawing it down. Tillman was among those who feared that if the age of consent were raised too high, innocent white men might be entrapped and legally ruined by adolescent black seductresses. That to piggyback off of what the previous speaker spoke said spoke volumes, and it speaks to me about the pedophilic nature of white people and white supremacy just the discussion of the age ranges alone just kind of tells you that the mindset of these people and just the, just the demonic psychopathology of the group, it's just their group in general and their brutality. And the fact that they wanted to put their sexual terrorism on young black females of that age, and we know that they rape babies too, but it's just, just it shows you their sickness. Just They're just sick sick group of people. And then the final part I wanted to talk about was the section on uh, page 242 where uh, Ben Tillman is uh, quoted, I believe it's Ben Tillman, no, George Tillman uh, was quoted as saying, we are not a free people. He began for if we were free, instead of having legal suffrage, we would have Negro slavery. Instead of having the United States government, we would have the Confederate government. That just speaks violence to me because in their minds, they're not truly free unless they're brutalizing, killing, Torturing, maiming, raping, and doing and, and committing genocide against Black people, and that just speaks volumes to me as far as it just jumped out the moment that you read it. And thank you very much. I'll leave my line there.
2: May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. All right, caller from seven one two. I just took a few notes at the end there, um, from what I heard and I had to go back over and listen to it like I do all the time. But I I noticed that to the ten ten year old age of consent and that was in North Carolina. So that'd be interesting to research um all the states. I wonder where they are where they were with that, um, back then. And that I noted also that adolescent black seductress, um line there I thought that was that's very interesting like the last caller was saying it speaks to their love of pedophilia they love it and that poll tax and i heard a lot about poll tax um in in other readings that we did and i wonder is that still secretly going on like maybe it's in the taxes somewhere and we don't know about it i just noticed that one and um the confederate state government that reminded me of this movie that me and my um, family watched um, a couple years back. It was called Confederate State of, States of America, I think it was, and it kind of told the story of how it would have been like if the South would have won, you know, their little war that they had. And I thought all of that was interesting. Um, and those are the notes, the notes that I took tonight.
1: Right on, right on. Uh, did
0: did we miss anybody? Anybody who had a hand up who has been unable to share thus far? folks that have hand up right now if you're listening in and and you think you might have something you want to share we still have about 15 minutes you should go ahead and get your hand up now please don't wait till the last minute uh if you have comments and then if any of the other folks that are with us if you have anything else you want to make sure you get in before we wrap up we should have time for that too um just uh real quick i definitely the that passage that is talking about the uh age of consent Uh, And consistently, I think we've talked about this theme uh, many times throughout the years on the program uh, in terms of white men uh, and projecting all of their uh, sexual deviance uh, and their history of raping serially, raping and molesting uh, black females, young black girls. Even Rosa Parks uh, has written about this uh we've re- talked about this in uh warmth of other suns as well um but projecting all of their deviance onto black females and saying well they egged it on or they just seduced the white man or they're you know so sexually uh, aroused and demonic Uh, that they're always willing you know they're always of course looking to have some sort of sexual encounter and looking forward to it because then they can have a white child so they can be proud of that too I mean all of this just ludicrous uh, justification for raping and and plundering black females and raping black males too there was a lot of that as well Um, but yeah that's standard we've heard that so many times and that's a huge part of why for so many years uh, no white person uh, was ever convicted. Uh, for raping a uh, black female. Uh, that was a big part of uh, what Robert F. Williams was talking about, what motivated their efforts uh, in North Carolina, just a little bit north of where we've been focused on. But yeah, I thought that was important for all the reasons that you all uh, pointed out. The pedophilia as well. Uh, on 237, went back here, uh, a couple other passages. The first one, Uh, where we get D.S. Henderson, uh, Aiken County lawyer, uh, red shirt leader. So this is a white terrorist. um, He declared that white supremacist arguments for women suffrage were founded upon pure cowardice. The idea of saying to the world that the Negroes were so numerous that we had to drag the woman into the state. Before us to protect us is pitiful. Before we do that, let us do away with the excellent report of the committee. Go back, get our shotguns and stand by the polls and not in the name of heaven. Drag our women to the ballot box Wow we can I appreciate this is the sort of thing. I think I've said this consistently uh, when you get kind of some of the older documents where white people just make it plain. Uh, their views on what maintenance of uh, white terrorism, white domination, what that means. There you go. Uh, Continuing uh, that same page, uh, just going down a little bit, uh, Yeah, where you have all these white people who are speaking out against uh, females being given the opportunity to vote. Uh, uh, Yes, where they talk about the massive opposition to Uh, Black females voting. I thought that was really important. Also, um, they will where it says Tillman, they will talking about black females. They will make the political night meetings of the colored people more hideous. (laughs) Black women would be even harder to manage, even more pestiferous than black men. Reason enough to oppose women's suffrage. I didn't even know what pestiferous uh, was. I had to look that one up uh, as we were rolling with the uh, text. Um, I guess FYI, I think I still have it up. uh, on Yep. Harboring infection and disease. Uh, And then there's also another definition, uh, constituting a pest or nuisance. And I think both would be applicable for the context that was given. Um... Yeah, I thought many of the white women, a lot of the arguments that they gave, it sounded very similar in terms of the thought patterns that I hear from white feminists. Uh, It's not articulated in the same manner uh, that even though and it's not even that I'm appealing that they are making appeals on the grounds of, hey, we're being mistreated and this ought to be just because it's. We should do this in support of white supremacy. <laughs> we should do this. This will help us in further terrorizing Negroes. Like that is, that's the pitch that's given. Not we're being mistreated. Not that we feel agreed. Not that you all are going to get it. You all are being sexist and patriarchs. It's, Hey, we can help you get the niggers. That's like the pitch and that that is mildly successful for some of the white people. They're like, yeah, we might be able to do this. If we can figure out a way to get those, you know, black winches, make sure that they don't, they don't vote too. Uh, this might help us in controlling the niggers. It is fascinating. It's all I can say I, uh, for me, this is a fascinating read to get this sort of uh blatant lay down uh, of white supremacist principles. Um, i got a few other things that stood out. Um, the, mm, 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 two, mm, mm. <laughs> Where Tillman is, is coming out, even some of these where he's coming out and, and giving his uh, blatant, I'm talking about Ben Tillman, giving his blatant disapproval uh, of women being allowed to vote. I am mildly surprised where you have so many white women. I'm sure they have women's studies. Uh, at Clemson, and that might even be an interesting experiment to see if any of the white women's groups have stepped up to say, "Well, hey, this guy's a sexist too. Uh, he's not even down to have us vote, and has this antiquated notion of what he thinks a woman should be, and blah blah blah. He's a sexist. We don't want to be endorsing that either. Have they stepped up to the forefront to say, you know, we we don't think this guy's adequate either. We don't think that the signature building on the campus of Clemson." or Winthrop uh, should be named after this guy, or well, we don't think this guy should have a statue at the state capitol. I would be uh, not surprised if they have been silent, but that is something that I will inquire about uh, in the future moving forward. Um, any of the other folks we have about, well, I guess less now, less than 10 minutes, if folks have any other comments that they want to get in, any of the folks that had a hand up with us.
4: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I, uh, I wanted to say that I felt, Throughout the reading of this book, we heard, like you said, on the fact that white people are willing to subjugate women and mistreat mistreat their own people as well as they can mistreat black people at the same time. And it just speaks to the fact that just about everything that they've done to us, they've perfected on themselves first. They've always tried it with each other. They've been fighting like cats and dogs, so they won, and essentially, they still do, and to me, this book is kind of proof positive of how they do so and how, how they're capable of still doing so. And it's an ode to that old lifestyle under the system of white supremacy as well. And um, it was just a lot of that was discussed throughout the whole reading of the book, and I just felt that that was kind of fascinating, too, the fact that they will mistreat each other and they kill each other as long as they could kill more of us in the process. And, again, just the fact that they perfected terrorism and terrorizing their own before, before, before they ever encountered non-white people to do the same to us as, as well, and I'll just unmute my line there. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I had to make sure I got in as well. I thought it was fascinating. We on this program who have spent so much time talking about what do you mean when you say white? What does it mean to be white? Uh, the importance of racial classifications, deciding what are the parameters. Uh, what are the criterion for deciding whom is a white person, whom is a black person and all that. They had a sizable chunk that talked about all that. And uh, even talking about how they might not necessarily want to have dialogue in trying to explain what constitutes a white person, what constitutes a black person disagreements uh, about all of this. I thought that was fascinating as well, where you've got people in now who are arguing Uh, over you know if you can have any quote-unquote black ancestry at all does that disqualify you or can you have just a little bit and how much is too much i mean very interesting material there as well that went all all the way over into uh 240 uh and then i thought robert smalls i think this is someone that we've heard repeatedly throughout the text who's been trying to do what he can do under uh dire circumstances it seems Uh, I thought that was just phenomenal to institute this penalty for white people. uh, I guess I should be doing uh, for white people who are engaged in sexual intercourse with black females. uh, If they're encountered in any sort of sexual arrangement or married or anything, that they are disqualified from public office uh, and saying, hey, you all are talking all this about uh, purity and who is qualified to vote uh, and upholding the family and being righteous. uh, Who would be uh, against this? You know, and trying to institute this and trying to do this to get some form of protection uh, for black females who are being serially molested and raped, even young black girls. Uh, I thought that was brilliant. Uh, another illustration of black self-respect. Another illustration when people say that black people have just been chumps and cowards and, you know, haven't done anything to fight back uh, against racism. Uh, I thought some of the because this is I think this has come up as well in terms of uh, white men. Uh, having sexual intercourse with black females and just uh, what they call interracial relationships period. Them trying to restrict this, police this, make sure there's not uh, too much of this happening and making sure white people are not, you know, going uh going to uh to extremes uh in their sexual exploits this has come up before and them seeming as though this is something that they don't really want to get too involved in i think they had said before it was hey we'll just turn our head we'll just pretend that this is not this is not happening and and we'll just not talk about it too much we don't want to get into making a whole lot of laws do whatever you want to do in that regard just as long as we can go out and uh lynch and castrate and murder as many black people as we need to in response to a Black male, you know, allegedly thinking about a white woman, but anything else, you know, any, any white man wants to rape any black person, male, female child. That's totally cool in the gang. A uh, white woman, if you want to rape them and, and unless you say it's rape, that's fine too. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. And that's a theme that's come up repeatedly in the text. Uh, anybody have any any comments on those two aspects uh, specifically when they get the into these debates about what constitutes a white person, what constitutes a black person, or the uh, trying to stop some of the sexual terrorism that was happening?
4: Yes, there was something you just said that popped out in my head. The fact that they had these public discussions about what constituted a black person and a white person, to me kind of goes back to the fact that this is how they get the information out to the masses. They have these public conversations and it trickles down to the average Joe Show Whitey that this is what the situation is and this is how you ought to behave or to think. The same way that um, you know, a lot a lot of it seems like back then a lot of what politicians and, and prominent white supremacists said would trickle down to the masses. And I believe uh just like I think now the, the differences difference is today they more or less use media to do the same thing. So um like Joe Zimmerman uh, killing Trayvon Martin and getting away with it, it's kind of a sign for the average white person that you can do this too and get away with it. It's just like it's the same messages being sent, they're just using a much broader medium today and they had that option, just like you spoke, spoke about previously, uh, the repeated showing of black death on television and, and on uh, YouTube and that being the new uh, postcard, the new, the new postcard with white supremacy of today. It's the same behavior, they just modify it and it mutates to adapt to the society that we're now in. But that's just something that popped out to me immediately. Like, right? this is how they get the information out, and this is how it trickles down to the average, you know, white male, female, and even child, as far as how they are to treat us and to think about us as well as themselves.
2: And I, I would also like to add with the amount of, of rape that, that went on, you know, even before slavery. Uh, I mean, you know, when when it first started on the slave ships, if they allowed the the baby and the mom to live, <laughs> a, a lot of them probably do have African ancestry, you know, down, you know, down through there. So, you know, for them to be worried about that, it's just it's just more nonsense, and it's just it's just their them, their way of keeping racism and white supremacy going, and we we just have to we have to get in the game here are I feel like we're out of the game. We have to get in the game.
0: Uh, <clears throat> just a uh, yep. related subject matter. Mr. Jeremy Ford can take it right there. Just, they did mention Strom Thurmond, uh, that, uh, Mr. Tillman's attorney eventually would become Strom Thurmond's father. Strom Thurmond. yes, he was a long time South Carolina Senator, uh, I think for almost a half century, Uh, and following in the footsteps of Ben Tillman. And uh, he also ran for president, uh, and he was a staunch, unabashed uh, white supremacist in the same vein as Ben Tillman, fought relentlessly like Ben Tillman to keep black children from being educated, and uh, he had a daughter uh, ripping his uh, black housemaid uh, procreated had a child with her, and kept that child secret didn't acknowledge her. I uh, think she wrote a book uh, about all of this later on. I think she ended up living in Seattle, his uh, daughter in fact, um, but yeah neither here nor there I thought that was important since that did get mentioned during this segment. Mr. Demery, for you were going to comment
3: uh yes, quickly. I wanted to comment on uh Robert small's uh, strategy on to combat the terror the terror that was being imposed upon black women during the time. And then quickly um, when they started talking about the amount of Negro blood that had to be present before you were not considered a white person. And it seems like they gave credit to George Tillman for uh, something that, you know, he remembered about, what his grandfather said and this and that. And like the previous caller was saying, that with all of the uh, rape and terror that was going on, white men have an asset to black women that uh, there were probably a lot of uh, lighter-skinned individuals that were on the border of passing and not. So
0: I'll mute my line. Right on. Yeah, I would have to double check with uh, Strom Thurmond just to make sure. But I think the black female that uh, he raped, I think she, it might have been a pedophilia type thing. I would just have to go back to see how old uh, she was at the time. But I think she was significantly younger than he was. So I'll double check. We'll have that for uh, next week. I would encourage folks uh, to read that article that was in the uh, the Washington Post. Uh, my sister was killed in the Charleston church shooting. Removing the Confederate flag isn't nearly enough. Uh, by uh, Malcolm Graham Uh, his sister was Cynthia Graham Hurd she was one of the nine victims uh, in the shooting Uh, and he makes a lot of great points Uh, it's it's very focused on uh, racism in South Carolina and specific things there uh, that are impacting uh, black people and making it difficult for black people in the state of South Carolina and North Carolina uh, in various areas of people activity I think I read a passage of it uh, before, but I think it, it goes well uh, with this book that we're reading and, and the whole reason that we were reading this book in the first place uh, was in response to the Charleston shooting and the death of uh, Cynthia Graham Heard, the other eight victims, uh, to get a better understanding of those events. So I would definitely encourage folks to check that out. It's on the Facebook page and uh, constructive material just came out yesterday, uh, two couple days ago, sorry. Uh, with that, Uh, We will wrap things up. Uh, We should be here next uh, Friday. Uh, It'll be the second to last session. And then two weeks from today, we will wrap the book up. Uh, We are on the home stretch. So if you are listening to the archives, if you have any thoughts, if you want to email them in, feel free to do so until justice at gmail.com. If you're listening to the archives and, you know, aren't able to participate live, you can email me your thoughts. We'll read them on the program in the last two weeks before we, wrap up and move on to the new text uh in that vein i already had in mind what i wanted to read next but uh i was distracted with we're not distracted but just uh in recognition uh it's been 10 years uh since the immense devastation uh of the breach of the levees and hurricane katrina down in uh louisiana new orleans area um i'm looking I think it would be great because we will finish this book uh, on the 28th, which is actually uh, the day before the 10 year anniversary. The compensatory call-in will be on that Saturday. But uh, so the following week will be on our new book. I would love to do a book on uh, what happened with Katrina. There's some new ones that came out for the anniversary. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson wrote a book. Obviously a lot of those books deal with racism. Uh, I'm trying to find ideally what I would like Uh, It seems like it would have to be one of the newer books, because I think with Katrina, the racism of the first two weeks is obvious. The racism of what has happened over the last 10 years with all of that, that, you know, a lot of people did stop paying attention. So they weren't really following everything that was happening with the evacuees and what happened with the recovery and rebuilding in New Orleans and what happened to all the people that got displaced and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's so many different angles. Uh, to look at so many, I mean, every area of people activity um, that I feel like it would be better to read one of the newer books because they can give more of the context of how things have evolved. Uh, I can only say, and I definitely don't claim to be an expert on it, I've been doing more research over the past couple of weeks. Um, the more you study about what happened after the storm, oh man, <laughs> like that, I mean, it is way worse. Way, way worse. Everything that happened after the flood, the storm, all of that, uh, in terms of what white people cooked up for predominantly black population in the New Orleans area. But if folks have a recommendation for a really good book. I would think it would have to be one of the newer ones, like I said, to really encompass the totality of everything uh, that's gone on over the last decade. But if you have a suggestion, I already have my eye on a couple. If you have a suggestion on one of those, let me know, uh, because that's probably uh, what I would like to do next. It would seem timely, I think, to spend some time reflecting on one of the greatest uh, disasters uh, and really most prominent public displays of just absolute contempt for black life uh, that I can recall over the last I don't know, 25, 30 years. Uh, It was just a total abomination, and uh, I think we should spend some time uh, revisiting, remembering, learning, and hopefully uh, inspiring us to make sure that we have some sort of plan in place, have at least talked about things so that we can uh, put ourselves in a better position if something like that should happen again. Uh, with that we'll be back tomorrow compensatory call in and uh, we'll also be here on Sunday that's our early start Shani and I will be here Sunday 12 noon Eastern 9 a.m. Pacific and Enola aired she will be with us on Monday evening she was with us before black mental health professional Uh, she will be talking about the PTSD Hurricane Katrina I just have seen reports this year talking about the lasting impact of trauma Uh, That the people who experienced all of that, who lost loved ones and got displaced or were placed in a contaminated trailer for two years and just the myriad of abuse that that happened. They were talking about the lingering trauma that those folks are still experiencing and how they're setting up uh, mental health uh, professionals throughout New Orleans for folks to get help because they know it's a very hard time for a lot of uh, people, a lot of black people in particular. Um, but she will be with us. Enola aired this Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific again, talking about mental health. We'll also be talking about Sandra Bland and some of these uh, suspicious deaths uh, in custody and what we can do uh, to shore up our uh, mental health. Uh, if we're a little down in our spirits, just seeing this constant stream of black death. Uh, she should have some suggestions Monday evening, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific. If you have questions, confusion, problems gripes feel free drop an email until justice at com. we're on twitter at until justice uh thanks everyone for tuning into the broadcast i hope it has been a constructive investment of your friday evening uh if you're gonna go out have fun do your thing in the sun that's great just be codified you do not want to lax or forget that we are still in a system of white supremacy in that vein buckle your seat belt that is a very easy counter-racist strategy i've seen too many non-white people who end up that is the justification for having contact with uh some likely race soldier not buckled up they can stop you ticket you all that waste some of your time take some of your coins very easy way to try to minimize contact with enforcement officers Buckle your seatbelt and also in that vein, no alcohol, other intoxicants. If you're going to get behind the wheel, Uh, you already know. You already know enforcement officers. They are looking for you. If you are a black person, non-white person, but especially a black person, they're looking to make difficulties for you. Do everything that you can So that you are not making it easy for them to cause you problems and even take your life. No alcohol behind the wheel. I would even, hey, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism uh, to shun alcohol intoxicants uh, under all circumstances. Uh, But if you can't do that, at minimum, be codified be very careful about the non-white people that you're around if they're going to be consuming alcohol it's too many times where we just have a lot of unnecessary and easily avoidable problems just because we're in an environment where people are not making good choices because they're under the influence and definitely never around white people who are under the influence. That is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. It can go from zero to terrorism in about 10 seconds. Uh, I just would not encourage being in that sort of environment at all, not drinking with them. You don't want to be around. You don't even want to be in the area. If it's white people that are intoxicated, uh, because they're just going to be looking for the opportunity to terrorize. That said creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with our selves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
1: Nigga, you so
3: brainwashed.
5: I'm a victim, like your
0: brother.
3: you a victim. Yeah. I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>